Welcome, everyone, to a special edition of Director's Club slash Voices and Visions, where a wonderful returning guest joins us to talk about underrated films of a particular decade. We've done the 90s, the 80s, and for today, we're going back to what is considered a golden era of cinema, the 1970s. And I am once again truly honored to have a returning guest who... Um, has directed a film that made my favorite movies of all time list recently, as well as acted in one that remains one of my favorite Stephen King adaptations. I am, of course, talking about the one, the only, the immensely talented Keith Gordon. Hello. I, 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 you know, after that introduction, I now just feel kind of embarrassed and like I'm just, <laughs> I'll just stay quiet because you said such nice things that I, I don't know how to respond. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't help it. I I recently, uh, well, even though the show uh, Directors Club has reached about 180 some episodes now, it's 10 years old, and for the 10th anniversary of when it first launched back in January uh, of 2011, and so I did a you know special anniversary show this year. I revised my top 100 favorite films list. And also added some some honorable mentions, of course, because a hundred isn't even enough. Oh God, no! <laughs> you God, know? no! Yeah, but I, like I've said in the past, Waking the Dead is one of my favorite movies of yours, and I'm very glad well, that you made it. <laughs> thank you. I I am too, and I'm really glad you saw it because you were one of seventeen people who actually have seen it. Um, and no, I I, I look, it's probably. It's my favorite film of my own in terms of its personal connection to my life. So sure, sure. Um, I'm always really happy when it touches somebody else. It's one of those films that seems to be very um, idiosyncratic in people's reactions. So some people really get it and it really speaks to them. Other people are like, what was that? And I think really it's very much about how you experience love and loss. And for some people, and, and to give credit where credit's due, it, it really goes back to the book, um, you know, that that I think uh, I think that that was the case. I read the book and was immediately like, oh, my God, I completely understand this. Yeah. And I think whenever you deal with very personal things, there are going to be some people that really it speaks to them and then other people who don't, don't just don't have the same experience. So I'm always pleased when when somebody kind of has the same feeling I have about the story which, you know, goes back to Scott Spencer, so. Yeah, I should go back and read the book for sure. Since I'm such a well, it's, they're very similar. I didn't, I didn't go far from the book because I thought the book was so moving. And, I mean, the biggest thing, and this has been happening a couple times for me as a filmmaker when I've adapted books, I almost, if I really love the book, a lot of the things that you love about a good book, you know, are great images, dialogue, characters, I and mean, they're all the things that make a great movie. So, so then you start functioning even though I'm working as a screenwriter, you're sort of functioning almost more as an editor. Your, your job almost becomes, how do I condense this into two hours? Yeah. Uh, rather than how do I rethink it? Um, because, you know, if you really think a book is powerful and wonderful, there's a lot you're going to steal um, and, and just use flat out. Uh, so for me, it was just that, you know, the book is very much like the film. It just has a lot of other subplots and goes off in other directions at times where we just went, okay, that's great. We just... You can't do that in a two-hour movie. Yeah, I can imagine that. And uh, every year I also do this yearly retrospective where we go back 30 years. In fact, the last bonus episode, we just covered 1991. 
in its entirety, which went wow. for six hours. <laughs> wow. <laughs> which was a blast. But then I'm like, so I was looking ahead to 1992 and I'm like, oh, cool. I get to sing the praises of a midnight clear <laughs> for next year. So that's, well, that's exciting. Well, I, I, I thank you in advance for that. Uh, it's, you know, hey, and it's finally out on a great Blu-ray in America. That's like, that was a 20-year battle. Mm-hmm. Um, so if, you, if, people, if, if people are intrigued with you talk about it, they can actually see it in the right aspect ratio and Woo-hoo! with a decent image, which has been the case in Europe for many, many years. But for very weird and you know corporate reasons, the only release that was out here was like this terrible four three you know pan and scan, mm. awful early transfer that I just despised and could not get them to let go of it and let uh, let somebody put it out on Blu-ray until very recently. So you know, and thankfully, it's actually now viewable here at home in, in a good way. Yeah, for sure. Well. Welcome back once again, and so sorry we skipped last year. Uh, gee, I wonder why. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It was just one of those things. We just Life was just going on so normally that we all just forgot stuff. Right. I know. I know. And, you know, we had a lot going on still, despite things going, you know, happening in the world. Being with- just bland. I'm so tired of life being bland. <laughs> No, just, you know, God, everything's just like it always is. Yeah, to quote quote Ben Stiller in The Royal Tenenbaums, I had a rough year, Dad. (laughs) That that scene destroys me because, dude, I saw The Royal Tenenbaums, I'd say, three or four months after my dad passed. Oh, wow. Yeah, and seeing, like, and to me, my dad maybe resembled very slightly Gene Hackman. So it was like a layer on top of a layer of, I was just like, oh my God, you're destroyed. And I loved Rushmore, but it didn't make me cry necessarily. Right. But Royal Tenenbaums, please, that ending, you know. Yeah, I remember being shocked at how moved I was by it. Yeah. Because, you know, Anderson's style is so kind of playful and, you know, so I was was really enjoying it, but – at the end of the day, it it was a very emotional experience, and that was I, I always like that. Actually, I like when I watch something and I'm caught off guard mm-hmm. by the power that it has. Um, I always think that's really interesting. You know, when you're kind of enjoying a film or you're laughing, and then suddenly it's like, wow, okay, that got me in the gut. And um, I think it's a very you know, it's a very strong. I think something film does very well in the way it can yeah. match up genres but also can mash up emotions and you know something that's light and funny can turn very moving in a second uh, you know in a well-made film you know what punched me in the gut when i first saw it I, i'm i'm still terrified and get like the, the heebie-jeebies at the thought of um arnie calling his dad a motherfucker <laughs> <laughs> i was just like when i because you know when i saw that when i was probably way too young like eight or nine or ten or something and i was like whoa i i just wasn't prepared for that and obviously your monologue about what love means (laughs) good god let me tell you a little something about love dennis it has voracious appetite it eats everything friendship family it kills me how much it eats but i'll tell you something else you feed it right, and it can be a beautiful thing, and that's what we have. 
You know, when someone believes in you, man, you can do anything, any fucking thing in the entire universe. And when you believe right back in that someone, then watch out, world, because nobody can stop you. Then nobody, ever. And you feel this way about Lee? <laughs> what? Fuck no. Talking about Christine, man. How did, was that was that in the original source material? Uh, I don't think so. I think that I think both of those. If, and I and I, I apologize. If I'm remembering this wrong. You know, however many years later, but I think both of those specifics were Bill Phillips, the screenwriter. Mm. Uh, I don't think they were as such in the book. I think the ideas were in the book, but I don't remember that in the book. Arnie ever calls his dad a motherfucker, <laughs> and I don't think the the monologue. Although that one, I'm less sure of. That could have been King because it certainly sounds yeah. kind of. Yeah. So it either was Bill Phillips channeling King or that was in there, or maybe it was as often happens when you adapt a book, maybe it was in there in a much different or longer way or whatever. And Bill just did a great job distilling his essence into a, you know, a, a, an eight sentence monologue instead of a three page monologue. Um, you know, that's, that's, I think part of the screenwriter's art is sometimes finding, you know, how do I have somebody act out or say this in a very brief way that will have the, power and pungency that it had in a novel where you could take all the time in the world to do it. That must have been fun to prepare for that moment. Uh, I, yeah, that whole movie was fun. Uh, <laughs> I gotta say that was probably my favorite on screen acting experience. Uh, it was because the role was such a blast. And, yeah. and I mean, look, getting to call your dad a motherfucker while you choke him, that was, that saved me about three years of therapy right there. <laughs> I mean, just doing that scene. Um, I mean, that there really is, I mean, acting, especially in a movie is very magical because you, you know, get to do all sorts of things you'd never do in life. Uh, right. yeah. and you know, but we all have fantasized about, you know, whether it's being the bad guy or the good guy or the lover or the killer or the, you know, we all carry those, those imagined selves. And so you get to do it. And there's something to doing in a movie where it feels very real. You know, you, you, the, you know, when you act in a play, you're very aware that you're on a stage, that there's however many hundreds of people sitting there. The sets aren't real. Nothing feels real. You're, it, it's a very much you're very conscious of how imaginary it is. On a movie set, everything looks real. If you're having breakfast at a breakfast table, the food is real. And, the you know, Christine was a real car. You could get in and drive. And so so the ability to kind of let yourself fall into the fantasy more is, is way higher for me, at least uh, in film. And that's really fun because. Yeah, you never lose your mind. You don't think I really am this person or whatever. But, but the 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 childlike sense of make believe is really aided by the fact that all this amazing stuff is right there. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. I think I think it would be difficult for me to be. I'd be I'd be very self conscious with the act of being vulnerable and knowing that at some point lots of people might see what I'm doing. So I think sure. you know actors are able to maybe turn that part of their brain off to get into the moment for sure. Well, to a point, <laughs> um, I actually think that part of what's so hard for actors and you know, why actors sometimes get terrible reputations and there are actors who deserve their terrible reputations, but they're not many, but actors often are very neurotic and stressed because of that. I mean, it's a scary thing to do, you know, yeah. to be a good actor is very um, exposing and, and naked and you're, going out and behaving in odd ways and people are, you know, that people are going to be watching you do it. And it's a very vulnerable thing. It's why I have such 
a, you know, as now as a director, I have such love and appreciation for and, and patience with actors because it's scary. I mean, it's scary if you've done it forever. It's scary if you're a big star. You know, if you can, if you get a, somebody even who's huge to sit and really talk, nine times out of ten, you'll get them to open up about how scary it still is for them and how. And I remember when I was working with, with Jodie Foster on Waking the Dead, and we would just be chatting, and she would talk about how. You know, every time she acted, she was sure that was the time everybody would figure out that she wasn't good at it and that she'd been a fraud all along and that, she, you know, she never had any talent. And this is like Jodie Foster. And, you know, uh, I, I think that that's part of the magic of actors is that they, you know, face down those fears. But I don't think it's that they don't have them, or at least that seems to be very rare. Uh, and I think it's part of one of the hardest things that, that actors do. I mean, that's the part of the job nobody thinks about. But. To, to sit in front of a, a camera or an audience and weep or laugh or take your clothes off or, you know, be silly or be mean or be uh, – it's really vulnerable. And, yeah. and uh, it's amazing to me when people, you know, can do it brilliantly, you know, because you have to deal with all that. And then you have to, like, embody a character and use an accent and do all these things and, you know, and, and, and so you're – your, your conscious brain is, is really busy working on very difficult things while your subconscious brain is just going, get me out of here. This is stupid. Why are we doing this? Everybody's going to laugh at us. So it's it's an amazing thing that actors do. Yeah, I know. Anytime I watch like a Cassavetes movie or e even more recently, something like Blue Valentine with Ryan Gosling and Michelle Williams, I'm kind of like just in awe of their bravery, like to, to go to those places that I could, I, I know I could never do, and certainly very few people could pull off successfully. So it's, I, I think the more and more as I go on and watch more movies, I do come at it as like an acting appreciation exercise. I mean, there's, there's so much to, to love about movies. It's kind of crazy. It's like, I cannot connect with one thing, but I, I can connect with maybe just the score or the use mm -hmm. of music or just, you know, the writing, the editing. So, I mean, you can come at it from so many angles and that's what we're going to do here with our uh, discussion. On... Oh, right. We have to have... Wait, the movies. We have to talk about movies. <laughs> I know, right? Uh, <laughs> and, and the first one, um, I don't want to go on too long about mainly because I did an entire episode with uh, Sergio Mims, who's, who's a great film historian and critic. He's doing a lot of commentaries now on Blu-rays. But yeah, I feel uh, like I'm definitely that's a very familiar name. From the author of Taxi Driver comes Blue Collar, the story of three men who spend their whole lives working to catch up. There's going to be some changes, man, in the union, big changes. Everybody know what the plant is. The plant just shot for plantation. And I was on that picket line every day. That's right, man. I'm still paying the bills and the money out of bar to support my family. Mr. Brown? Yes? Yeah, my name is Mr. Berg. I'm with the Internal Revenue. I don't want none. But according to the hospital records, yeah, you, you you claim six and you only have three. I couldn't have all my kids in the hospital, man, you know. Uh... Here, see, we have Sugar Ray Brown. You've got Gloria Brown. You've got O.J. Brown, Gail Sayers Brown, yeah. Jim Brown, Stevie Wonder Brown. Who's Stevie Wonder? I was going to come by your house and see you, but I figured hey, maybe listen, to get... man. Nobody comes near my house. Nobody I don't invite. You know, you should be done with that now. You have a hearing schedule. This is company time, Bartoski. Yeah, yeah. And I wouldn't be surprised if he ends up on an indicator release, like much like you did for Blue Collar. And 
yeah, like I said, this one we can go through a little quicker sure. just because I talked about it a lot uh, and want to know your thoughts, especially since, um, you know, people, this is, this is, a, we, t- we were talking about actors and talk about a showcase for somebody like Richard Pryor, who I always associated early on when I was younger with comedy and seeing him here was just mind blowing and knowing what be, you know went behind be behind the scenes, knowing what went on, that even adds a whole other layer to this, because they did not get along very well. <laughs> but yeah, I'm, th- yeah, clearly there was a, an insane amount of tension. Although it's funny, one always hears those stories, and it's like you know, have they been exaggerated over the years? Right, I mean, right. You know, one of the things I will say after a lifetime now in showbiz is the stories of how things went either get better and better or worse and worse over time. So I'm sure they really was terrible tension and all that. But I also feel like there is a history of embellishment and blarney that also goes <laughs> with this business. So that I always think some of those stories are the grain of salt. You know, it went from, oh, there was a fist fight to there was a knife to there was a gun. To there, you know, it's like, so, yeah. so there may be some element of that here. Um, but yes, clearly there was a lot of tension and, 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 but and I think look I think Pryor blew, blew everybody's mind. I I don't think anybody understood that he had that in him. Uh, I mean obviously you know Trader did, um, but but uh, I, you know most people myself included were like, oh Richard Pryor I guess it's funny, <laughs> and, which was part of I think which was sort of a, a brilliant move on. Schrader's part on a lot of levels, I think psychologically, because it, it brought people into the movie with a very different sense of where it might go. And that let the descent that the characters go through really get you. You know, I think, if it, you know, when you put like, I don't know, when you only put people who have been known as being serious and heavy and dark in a movie, kind of an audience, I think, comes in with a certain framework of what they're expecting. When you take somebody who's been mostly really funny and sharp-edged, but, you know, a lot of fun, and, and put them in a movie about, you know, sort of a human descent into a sociopolitical hell, uh, it, it catches you off guard, but also sometimes I think can hit deeper. And I think it was one of the many, many things about the film that, that were, like, genius choices that got made. Yeah, I completely agree. And it's just, it, it holds up in a way that makes it stronger watching it now. And... Well, the big thing is that all of the issues, and ultimately it is it is one of the rare, truly political American films. I mean, American mm-hmm. films will sometimes take on an issue, but this is like this is like basically a Marxist film, or 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 a, you know, for people who put up with that word, it's a it's it's a film that deeply questions the nature of of capitalism and American capitalism, in but in a in a, in a really intense way, not in a kind of yeah. gee, wouldn't it be great if things were more fair? I mean, it's an angry movie, and. You watch that movie now, and all the issues are the same issues. Like you realize nothing has changed, and I think that gives it a, a tremendous power. That little monologue at the end of the film, you know, it's spoiler for those who haven't seen it. You know, cover your ears, I guess. Although it's not, it's, it's more a philosophical thing. But you know that that last line about you know everything they do, everything they they they, they work towards is so that the black and the white, the rich and the poor, men and women, are all at each other's throats instead of going after the people who really own, run the system. That's really true, mm-hmm. and we see it so much in action right now. You know, even in in America right now, where you've got each of the groups that are disadvantaged 
you know, poor white, poor black women, people, you know, native people, people of color, gay people, disabled, you know, that the, the, the system does a great job of keeping those groups divided in their own much smaller group and prevents them from binding together to really be able to challenge the, the, uh, the established order of people who can you know, own most of the wealth. Um, unions have disappeared in America much more than in other countries. And uh, so all those same issues are like, you know, you watch that movie and there's nothing about it that doesn't re- apply to, you know, like some signs on stores or some technology might be different, but all the deeper issues are, are utterly uh, meaningful right now. Without a doubt. And, you know, pe- parents are still struggling, you know, to, to, to get their kid a, a, a proper dental plan, for example, you know, there's just, yeah. There's just things in this that you kind of go, wow, things haven't changed. And that's kind of sad. <laughs> you know, oh, it's, sad. it's really sad. And, and, and look, you can go back to the founding of the country and slavery. And I mean, this country mm-hmm. has always been run on the, a more extreme version of an exploitation of a workforce than even most other wealthy countries. And it's, and it's an issue in every country. And, whether they, you know, whether it's right, I mean, you can call yourself communist and be Russia and whatever. It's, it doesn't matter. I mean, in the end, most societies work on an underclass doing most of the work and making very little of the money. I mean, that's kind of the world has always been thus, but it it certainly has been the case maybe in America more than some places because we were founded on a slave economy. I mean, the reason America became as rich and powerful as it was was was, you know, a there was there was trillions of dollars for free of free labor that went on for hundreds of years. And the land was stolen for free from, you know, a bunch of native people who we kill off. So the the wealth of the country, to sound like some political demagogue, um, you know, really came out of out of exploitation in a very direct and clear way. So that issue is very endemic to, I think, the American experience and uh, has been addressed ridiculously little by our art and literature. And I mean, you know, it's sometimes acknowledged, but it's not it's not dealt with that often. And so to see a film that's like, this is how it works. folks, <laughs> and, and this is why, this is how they keep the people down. You kind of go, wow, you know, Paul Schrader kind of went there at a time when, you know, not many films do. Um, so yeah. it will always have a special place in my heart for that. Because when I saw the film, you know, I was, I came out in, I think 78 and I, which would have meant I would have been, um, 20, uh, 17. And that's um, the year I was born. Yay. <laughs> oh, hey. Um, so, you know, I was just starting to think about those issues. So for me, this is a very powerful. I mean, that's that's on a personal level. You know, I, I, I hadn't done a lot of deep thinking about economics and race and, you know, why are we the way we are? So it hit me at exactly the right moment. It wasn't like 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 maybe if I'd seen that film now for the first time, I'd be more likely to be. Yeah, of course, you know, but be a little bit more cynical about it. But but when I saw it. It, it felt very eye-opening, and it had that power that art occasionally has, especially when you're young, and mm-hmm. you see something that really makes you think about something you hadn't thought about. Like, it's one thing in a great piece of art when it makes you think about something you do care about, but when one, when one makes you go, I never even thought about this, um, I think that's incredibly powerful. And so this is one of those movies for me where, like, I don't think I saw the world quite the same way before and after seeing it. And, you know, what more can you ask from a piece of any kind of art? Right, no kidding. Yeah, and I think I, I actually think that people felt that way when they read the Chocolate War, for example, or um, 
more recently when we did the 1991 episode, I believe my uh, my guest on the show, Eric Childress, he he saw JFK when he was 17. So, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. it was it was like, oh, the government can lie to us like that. You know, it's like you, you may be a little naive, but at the same time, yeah, you are at, at that age. And you yes. you can learn from movies, but you can also gain a completely different perspective on how you see the world. So. Well, and, it, and it's and it's what the movie says specifically, but it's also getting your own mind working. I mean, I think the yeah. best thing that any art can do is, you know, it's one thing to make people you know upset about an issue or something and bring it to a point. But if you can get an audience to actually then think about it even beyond the movie and beyond how else does it does this function? And I think that's an amazing thing, you know, and I've been very grateful for the things in my life, books, whatever, paintings, it, things that just made me go, I want to know more about that. I, I want to, you know, I need to think about that in my own life. I need to, those are incredible things. And, and that's where, that's where I do think artists have a chance to make a, a, a deep and, and powerful contribution. And it's often, I think among young people, it's among older people too, because it can re you know, good art can reinvigorate your passion about something. It can still make challenge how you think about something. Uh, you know, you can be you can be old and cranky like me and read something new and go, wow, I, I never thought about that. And that's weird. And I need to think about it. Um, but I, it's you know, it's I, I think for a lot of artists, it's kind of one of the biggest reasons they do what they do is the hope that even a handful of people, you know, walk away from something they've created and and really have to think deeply about it and have to whether it's emotional or political or whatever it is. And it doesn't have to be about changing the world literally in terms of you know voting strategy. It can be. How, what you think about love or what you think about parenting or what you think about families or, you know, but I think I, I would think for a lot of artists, that's the most exciting thing you can imagine is that if somebody carries what you woke in them, it's like, all right, well, I had a reason to live. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm grateful for those experiences and we should flip the coin a little though and, and lighten things up with uh, a new leaf, which ah uh, yes, a love story that has my kind of sense of humor, but it's also, it's, it's also very caustic and dark. Oh yeah. In ways that I, I, I'm still floored by. I mean, Walter Matthau is, is just this glorious presence that has a consistency to it. Unlike any other, it kind of makes sense that he worked with Jack Lemmon. Cause talk about another consistent actor mm-hmm. who was able to surprise you in very subtle ways. And, um, some actors are just good at being themselves in a way that fits the character. You dare call me a son of a bitch. Madam, I have seen many examples of perversion in my time, but your erotic obsession with your carpet is probably the most grotesque and certainly the most boring I have ever encountered. You're more to be scorned than pitied. Good day, Mrs. Cunliffe. It's funny, though, because I think Matthau had more reigns than he got credit for. Yeah, I, I think Look you're at right. him in this movie, playing this rich, spoiled, kind of weird guy. And then you look at him and say, I don't know, uh, failsafe. And you look at him in, I mean, you look at him in, in or taking Apollo 1, 2, 3, or you look at him. I mean, he's one of those actors who was subtly very different in different roles. Mm-hmm. But because he didn't, you know, completely change his look or alter everything about him, people kind of saw him as having just a, a certain presence. Yeah. But when you look at the body of work, you go, wow, he actually, he was a character actor. I mean, he played different characters. He just did it in a subtle way. Um, 
But I love him. I think he is under he is I think he is underappreciated for how great he is. And I think this is an amazing performance because really he takes an utterly unlikable character. I mean, there's nothing <laughs> redeeming about this man and makes you want to watch him and laugh for mm-hmm. two hours. Um, <laughs> that's really hard to do. I mean, and, and, you know, and, and it's tragic that we have, that we've, nobody's ever been able to see Elaine May's full version of this. Uh, I heard tales of, cause my, my dad's actually in a new leaf, um, very oh. briefly. He plays, he plays the chauffeur that gets fired. Um, that was working for Elaine, uh, cause they knew each other. My dad was part of compass, uh, which became second city. So he was part of that group, he and my mom were in there with with Mike Nichols and Elaine May and and Barbara Harris and that no whole kidding. gang. That's amazing. Um, so huh. and they all stayed in touch. So I knew Elaine actually a little bit as a kid, which was amazing. Although I just thought she was just a great, funny woman. I had <laughs> I, I, when I really knew her, I was so young that I I don't think I had a real appreciation of how amazing and important she was. And then later, as I got to be aware that she was one of our very best filmmakers and had done insanely brilliant things. By that point, we weren't really in touch anymore. So I think I, like, I sent her a couple of notes, but she's she's very quiet. She lives uh, not reclusive. I mean, she's still out there in the world, but she's not like she's somebody who definitely kind of is in her own space. So I haven't stayed in touch with her, but I I couldn't admire her more. I mean, I I think you know not only is a new leaf a great movie, but Mikey and Nikki I think is one of the most underrated films of the seventies. Oh I mean, I think God, it, yeah, that's. You know, remarkably I mean to me she's sort of out Cassavetes Cassavetes in that movie I mean she kind of <laughs> and, and and both of those films have, actually have something in common which is a really fascinating sharp feminist awareness of toxic mm. masculinity exactly. uh, in a new leaf it's funny in Mikey and Nikki it's tragic but you know she was making sort of feminist movies that it, before that was even really a concept and she would do it without you saying watching oh I'm watching a feminist track I mean she she completely embodied her male character. She was one of the, she's one of those filmmakers that could make movies about men that were so masculine in their point of view that it's an amazing thing. But at the same time, she retained a feminine point of view on a bigger level about how screwed up men are. Um, and I, I think that's one of the many things that's that's really remarkable about her. Um, there's there's rumors that she might be working on something again. With the Johnson or something, I read that. I would love that. I know. I I, I was like, I mean, she's still acting. She still she did a play like what a year ago. I mean, she's you know she's not like retired. She's out there doing stuff. So yeah, no, and I I I think I might have said this at some point on the show, but I'm a fan of Ishtar. You know, it's not. I think it's a wildly underrated movie. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, it's uneven, but mm-hmm. I think it's got brilliantly funny things in it. And <laughs> the songs they sing, man, crack me up. And yeah, no, she's an amazing mind, and yeah. and you know, and she's also been you know legendarily like a, a, a ghost writer, you know, a ghost screenwriter on like a million movies. I mean, she's like one of those people that like if you have a script that's not quite working, you pay her a lot of money, and she comes in, and in a week finds a way to make it brilliant. Wow. Uh, I mean, at least that was what I'd always heard about her, you know, from, from everywhere. So there's but a, a, there's a longer are, cut of this? Uh, well, it's, it's, it, I don't know wh- if it exists or if it, you know, she, the film was taken away from her basically. And, uh, and okay. supposedly, and I heard this from my dad, but it's also it's fairly common knowledge. I mean, it's not like it's um, basically her original script apparently was much darker still. Um, and, had many more, was much longer, and had a lot more serious interludes between the comedy. 
Mm. Like it went, it, it whipsawed more back and forth between really funny and whoa, this isn't funny at all. And then really funny. And, and you know, the studio was, I guess, fairly freaked out while she was even making it and basically took the film away from her. And, and, you know, I know that famously she tried to have her film, her name taken off of the film when it was released in its current version, which is bizarre in the sense that it's still a brilliant fucking movie. Um, (laughs) But it's, you know, for her, I think it was probably very short of what she was hoping to create, Um, which is so interesting, you know, because I think it's an amazing movie that stands on its own brilliantly well, but it makes you go, God, I'd love to have known what it was that she had in her head. That was the, you know, two and a half hour version, I guess, you know, that, that she was, that she was editing. Uh, there's actually a good commentary track um, on the. I forget which version I have of it. I think it's. I don't. But but one of the, one of the editors talks about the experience of working on the film and hmm. sort of being there while it was taken away from her and and how how kind of insane and emotional upsetting the whole thing was. Yeah, that's a bummer when that happens for sure. But uh, well, what's amazing is it survives it. I mean, like yeah. if you don't know that you don't watch this movie going, "Wow, it was butchered by somebody." It, it's still an. It's a great movie. It's yeah. just apparently even more layers to it that we didn't get to see. Yeah, there's. Uh, I get that feeling whenever I see Gangs of New York. I'm like, mm, clearly there's an even better movie here, but I bet uh, the the I don't even want to say the name, but uh, the the guy who was in charge of Miramax butchered it. Yeah, no, no pun intended. Um, but this is a, this is that rare case where I think if you don't know that story, you don't watch this movie and feel like something's missing right. or. Yeah. Why does it feel weird? I mean, it, it's it's so well done that it survives sort of a you know a Harvey Scissorhands approach. Um, well it, put. <laughs> it, 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 uh, and, and it's a great movie. I mean, it's like it's a movie I un, un, unreservedly recommend to people, in spite of that history. And, I, and there aren't many movies like that where you go, yes, this was you know cut by somebody else, and you know the director wanted to take the name off of it, but you should still absolutely see it, and it's great, and it won't bother you at all. Because it's great. It's a great movie. It's a great story. And, you know, it reminds me a little bit of the Ealing studio movies, but, like, even darker. But it has that same thing of something like the Lady Killers or whatever, where, mm. again, you have characters who are really pretty unsavory. And yeah, yeah. they're still hysterically funny. And you find yourself rooting for them in spite of any logic or, you know. Um, and and she, the character she creates for herself is so sweet and heartbreaking. And, again, interestingly... Feminist. I mean, she's a romantic lead who's kind of goofy looking and she's a botanist and she's, you know, brain, not body. She's, um, you know, which which you just didn't see in movies much at that time. I mean, you know, and it's done in a comic way, but but, you know, you do fall in love with her and it's not for the usual reasons you fall in love with a movie, in a woman in a big studio movie made in 1971. Um, so. There's a lot about it that's unique, but it's the biggest thing for me is that it's, it's just damn funny. It's really funny. I mean, yeah, I have watched through it and through. It is, and I was like laughing out loud again, and forgetting lines and going, "Oh my god, that's right, that's so brilliant." I mean, it's really great. Um, you know, she is great. Matthew is great. The supporting cast, Jack Weston, is really funny. <laughs> James Coco is really funny. I mean, every it's it's just you know. Plus, it's it's beautifully shot. I mean, there's some really good you know images and and and. There's a shot of James Coco laughing in the foreground. Oh God! Yeah, deep focus with you know with 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 in the background, and it looks like something out of Citizen Kane. I mean, it's that <laughs> kind of like beautiful, you know, and meaningful. It's not just like a cool shot. It's a cool shot that's actually kind of like because it looks like he's about to be swallowed by James Coco, which is kind of 
exactly what's going on in the scene. And it's full of that too. It's full of, you know, she's a really wonderful visual filmmaker. And, and because, because she's so much fun with the characters, you don't always think about how much fun style she's bringing to things in, in her music and her visuals. And, but, but she's very complete as a filmmaker, I think. Yeah. And this is <laughs> definitive proof of that. And I, most of the film cracks me up, but that scene early on, that scene early on with his lawyer, you know, trying to tell him that he's broke. It, it, it's one of those, oh. it's one of those moments that, that reminds me of lost in America with, with Gary Marshall, you know, as the casino manager. Yes. <laughs> it's just this... yes, that's actually a really good analogy they're, they're, you're right those scenes have a lot of common yeah it's just pure oh, comedy gold really I I watched that and I kind of go oh man yeah if I was a, a film professor teaching comedy you know this is something I would show this check must be paid <sighs> Mr. Graham I'm and at once I'm trying to explain to you that it is impossible to pay the check because your expenses have exceeded your income to such a point that you have exhausted your capital. Now you have no capital, no income, therefore no funds for the check, you see. Don't treat me as though I were a child, Mr. Beckett. No, I'm not. I, I am just... as aware of what it means to have no capital as you are. Oh, good. good. Now, what about this check? Well, are you entirely sure that you really do understand what I mean by capital, Mr. Graham? You see, you've exhausted the capital. I can't cover the check because the check is for six thousand dollars and you don't have six thousand dollars in other words you don't have sixty dollars come to the point beckett for sure and it you know it sounds like when you listen to some of the commentaries and talk to people who were around it and all that it you know that there was a good amount of improvisation which is what elaine came out of i mean mm -hmm. she came out of literally improvisational theater and just surrounded herself with really smart funny actors and had a really strong script but wasn't afraid to also do a bunch of takes and let people riff and then, you know, just did a great job of finding the best variations on things. And, and, you know, that, that's, that is a tricky thing to do. I mean, because, you know, improvisation can work really well, but boy, you, it can also go off the rails super fast if you're not great at it. But look, she and Mike Nichols were literally world famous for it. And, you know, and so if anybody knew how to take that and bring that out of some really good actors, she would be the person to do it. Without a doubt, and this this next title, I'm 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 excited to talk about again. I, I mean, obviously, you've worked with De Palma. What was that? A beautiful love story. A cinematic odyssey through the rock universe from Greece to glitter. And beyond. The story of a sound. The man who created it. The girl who sang it. The monster who stole it. And the phantom who haunts the paradise. The ultimate rock palace. If I remember correctly, and it's really hard, it all gets blurred. I think I actually saw it while I was working with him. I think ah. it was movies I missed when it was first in the theaters. I was like, I was a little young for it. It came out when I was like 13. Um, you know, and I think it was probably not on my radar in the same way. Um, and then I think it was when I was doing either a home movies or dressed to kill that it was playing, came to a revival theater in New York. And <laughs> so I went with my girlfriend at the time who was also, you know, 
knew Brian and, and was a fan of his stuff. And, and it was great. I mean, it was really fun seeing it in the theater, which is kind of, it's one of those movies that I do think plays better even in a theater. You know, it's, it, well, it was the same reason it's something like Rocky Horror does. I mean, there is a <laughs> culty, goofy craziness to it that when you see it with an audience full of people who are laughing and, you know, it, it just, that energy, I think, really benefits the film. It's a little weird sitting and watching it alone in a room because you go like, that's funny, right? He means that to be funny. And that's, it's, sometimes comedy can, can have a different energy when you see it with people. And I remember that loving that experience. Yeah. I think a good Um, litmus test though, for me is I'm laughing despite being alone because you definitely laugh more because it's infectious with a crowd. And if this, if this had become a midnight movie, the way Rocky horror did, I would be one of those freaks because this is one of my top five favorites of De Palma. I, I I, you know, I don't know why it didn't become a cult movie the same way. I mean, I, I mean, I guess because Rocky Horror just caught that wave and became the mm-hmm. rock, yeah, the rock cult movie, and you didn't have there wasn't space for two. But it certainly to me this holds up, you know, holds up right with that. I mean, that's you know, it's 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 a really fun, really bizarrely creative movie, and 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 certainly not what most people now would think of as Brian De Palma. I mean, you know. <laughs> You and I are old enough and film fans enough to understand that Brian had this wacky side. But, you know, most people, you talk to an average 28-year-old film fan and, you know, De Palma makes like thrillers and all that. And that's that's how they see him. And so seeing this kind of weird, pastiche, crazy, over-the-top, super low-budget rock and roll thing is really cool. Because it's, you know, whenever you see a, a, a filmmaker go way outside what what they're sort of now known for. It's always so interesting, especially when they do it really well. Yeah. And, and Garrett Graham, man, he's just one of my favorite comedic character actors, especially with something like used cars, because that was my dad's favorite comedy. Actually. Uh, I love used cars. Yeah. (laughs) I I think used cars is an underrated movie. Yeah. I bet. I wonder if we talked about it before. It's very possible. I don't know. That it came I haven't up. watched it in a long, long time, so I could watch it now and go, well, "Oh my god, what was I thinking?" You got If you haven't, really, if you right. haven't listened to the commentary, that's that's one of the greatest commentaries I've ever heard. Oh really? With Zemeckis and Russell and Gail. Oh. Oh okay. It's hilarious. Like they're they're riffing the whole time. They're sharing memories. There's such energy, and they're always laughing. It's it's incredible. Uh, but yeah, and obviously, uh, I got to meet Paul Williams once very briefly when he was in town promoting the documentary about him. And I pretty much just, you know, outright thanked him for both this and the Muppet movie, (laughs) (laughs) you know, because those both had an impact on me in one way or another. Certainly seeing the Muppet movie as a kid that, uh, that, that also sort of solidified the fact that. I think I'm going to be a movie nerd. <laughs> you know, I just think yeah. this is my jam. And and, and yeah. the same goes for this. Well, this, you know, and, and he's and he's really effective in the film. I mean, he's yeah. not an actor in quotes, but it's a great use of him. Um, his energy, his presence is, you know. Yeah, same with he, Finley, he, too. Oh, yeah. Well, and Finley is also a wonderful actor. I mean, I mean, you know, Finley was was is was did a bunch of good work in a bunch of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's terrific in this. Um, but Paul Williams, you know, he really is a songwriter. I mean, that's kind of what, I mean, yes, he'd done some acting here and there, but this is a, this is a, I mean, basically playing the devil um, or, or a demon in service of the devil. And, and he's really effective. I mean, and, and he's so 
good at being not the obvious. And it's a great piece of casting, you know, that and on De Palma's part to pick a guy who, you know, is the most cherubic, sweet-looking, you know, little guy, and have him play this kind of couldn't be more horrible, evil guy is really fun. I mean, I think it really adds to the playfulness of the movie. You know, if you cast a kind of more traditional seeming villain, it just it would have taken so much away. Um, yeah. But the fact that everybody in this kind of is, is odd. I mean, really, I mean, you know, Jessica Harper is, is wonderful, but she's got an odd energy. She's not she's not your usual ingenue. You know, there's something a little bit more unique. Even her face. I mean, she's beautiful, but she's not boring beautiful. She's like got this odd, these those huge eyes and for sure, her yeah. round face and you know it it, it 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 the film is full of people who are who sort of transcend the archetypes that they are by nature playing and some of that is is brian as a filmmaker and as a writer but some of it is also casting really interestingly you know sort of against type and 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 i think that adds a lot to the movie yeah no totally and just a really interesting retelling of a you know the classic story in a way that it just kind of makes me giddy but at the same time you're right it's it's a very odd movie it's got this energy that is hard to describe and some people obviously may not connect with it but when you do when you get on this movie's wavelength it just clicks you know and you yes. and you feel uh just kind of kind of grateful that something like this could exist and i think that's true for a lot of the movies in the 70s where it's just like Wow, this kind of this can be made, <laughs> you know. Well, it's funny rewatching all these films to do this, which was an amazing experience because some of them I hadn't seen in a long time. Some of them are films I've seen a million times, and you know, had seen fairly recently. But some of them I hadn't seen in years. And there's certain things that showed up for me. Like one thing that I noticed was how many of them have a sometimes literal, but sometimes just feeling a theatrical sort of quality mm. um, that there's something in movies from that time that could be incredibly naturalistic uh, as some of these are not, I mean, Phantom of the Paradise is the opposite of naturalistic. I mean, right, it's right. hugely silly and over the top and operatic and, you know, but, but even something like Scarecrow, which we'll get to, you know, it's incredibly s subtle and nuanced, but there's still something a little theatrical in its, in its yeah. construction and its telling which is a plus. That's not a negative. That's not a knock. Um, but there was something that, that, that these films all had for me that I think was very endemic of that time where people weren't afraid <clears throat> to sort of mix even pure naturalism in terms of behavior mm -hmm. with something that, that, that yes, had felt either written or felt constructed or felt but kind of could take the best of both. Um, yeah, someone like Tarantino obviously would do that when he broke onto the scene. You know, it's like, it's still yeah. grounded, but it still feels cinematic, you know? Right. Not, you're not, nobody's trying to convince you you're watching real life just as it is. Yeah. And what's fascinating in watching all these films is how much that ran through so many of these great movies. Uh, even the ones that were very naturalistic. Mm -hmm. Still didn't feel like they were trying to convince me, this is just like what would happen. It, it, it wasn't worried about that. It was just saying, this is a great story and we're telling it as a storyteller. I guess... I guess maybe that's what it is. I mean, I'm sort of riffing as I'm saying it, but it's that you feel it. And maybe that's, you know, as I'm saying, maybe it's the case for any great movie and it's nothing to do with the seventies. Maybe it's just that we watched it was a bunch of great movies to watch, but you feel the presence of the storyteller. Um, yeah. but I think of that as a very seventies thing. I mean, it was the kind of the, 
the height of the auteur sort of thing in America, you know, that concept. So maybe even more than since, you know, the best movies you really felt were being created by somebody. You felt the, the hand of the creative person yeah. uh, in very different ways. I mean, you know, you know Elaine May and Jerry Schatzberg couldn't be more different in terms of the styles they brought, but you felt their intelligence behind the film in a very deliberate way. And again, that may be true for any great movie. You know, I, ha I haven't thought this through. So maybe Firm Grasp of the Obvious. But boy, it really stood out for me watching this set of movies. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And and honestly, I, I don't know if there's a better period. Like, Robert Altman in the 70s might be <laughs> just among some of the greatest works of art I've I've ever seen. You know, it's absolutely. Like, you know, certainly there are high highs like McCabe and Mrs. Miller and, you know, three women for me, but like everything almost every year <laughs> in the 70s, you know, like yeah. that, that run is remarkable. I'm with you. Okay. Wait a second now. The sleepy, grumpy sleepy duck. Gray. Sleepy, grumpy, dopey. Dopey. We got do Dumbo. There's no Dumbo. Dumbo wasn't in that cast? No, Dumbo. Gotcha. Okay. Dumbo. Dumbo flew. Well, what happened? We both lose, huh? Dumbo flew. Remember when <laughs> Dumbo flew? They set I that know. little house on fire. I've seen top. an elephant walk, but I've never, never seen, seen an, an elephant, elephant fly. fly. My God, I that know. Dumbo flew. Certainly, you feel Altman's stylistic innovations and presence in a number of these films. And I also wonder if a number of these films affected him. I mean, I wonder if there was a, you know, he was a such a touchstone, but I also think he was probably a guy who was also taking in a lot of what other people were doing. Um, but there is that kind of, there's, there was a messiness that he brought into American cinema that, that you know, sure, Cassavetes had done, but Cassavetes had also stayed very much on the fringe in terms of the, most of the audience. I mean, you know, people who knew Cassavetes appreciated him no end, but he wasn't somebody that as many people were aware of. I think Altman became a much more, you know, household name sort of filmmaker figure and did it while bringing a, a very alive, messy you couldn't hear every, every line of dialogue, people talking at the same time, wide shots playing for long, long times where behavior was just going on. Um, that was not, you know, very common in America. And he made it something that, you know, people embraced uh, and got excited about. And then I think a lot of other filmmakers got liberated by some of the work that he did. And then maybe their experience liberated him further. Yeah, someone, someone like Paul Thomas Anderson obviously – you know, sure. really responded to this, this style. And, and it's just because he took risks that nobody else was doing. And it's kind of like, maybe some of it is a little jarring. Like, um, wasn't California split on our list? I thought it was. Yes, we did. You're right. We do have an element. I was going to say, like, there's you, just, I, I... there are moments in that where I'm like, you know, struggling to focus on you know because there's so many layers to people talking that you almost have to readjust reacclimate the way you listen to dialogue as mm -hmm. you're watching the movie and early on he certainly sets the tone and introduces characters and creates this slow tension while giving the audience some exposition about what it's like to play poker that i just think is like a master class in editing 
and sound design at you know at the same time like he pulls this off and yet he he at the same time it's like how he just did it and it worked and it has this improvised feel but it also feels precise and controlled Mm -hmm. at the same time well that was his genius i mean that was what he did you know really maybe better than anybody of that moment um yeah is that he managed to make films. I mean, something like Nashville, you know, is an incredibly structured movie in a way, and yet feels completely improvisatory. Uh, I think that's a really hard thing to pull off, to feel like you've been dropped in the middle of a world and anything can happen, and you could follow any character at any moment, and you don't know where it might go, um, and yet to feel like there is a point of view behind it and there's control behind it. It's not just chaos. Mm-hmm. Um, but you experience it. And I guess maybe... And again, I'm saying this in 10 minutes from now, I could think this is really stupid, but maybe it's that he often makes films about characters who are lost in the world in some way or another. A lot of his characters, you know, are, are in, are, are in an insane world and trying to make sense out of it yeah. as I guess all of us are a lot of the time, but his movies often have that subjective experience. It's like you're, you've been dropped into this world too. And you're trying to like seeing the chaos and only hearing bits of things and the way life can be. And, and you're trying to sort of figure it out. And, you know, with California Split, you're dropped into a world of, you know, compulsive gamblers. And a very specific part of it, you know, there have been the more traditional, you know, hard-boiled gambler movies. But, you know, here are these two kind of goofy, kind of funny, kind of likable guys that you realize are completely fucked up and damaged and angry and toxically masculine in their own ways and self-destructive. And But they're also good time Charlies. And they're charming mm-hmm. and they're... And they're just trying to make sense of it all. And, and you're dropped into their world and suddenly you're trying to make sense of it all. So it kind of makes you be allies with these characters who may be doing really stupid things uh, or self-destructive things or whatever. But you're kind of in there with them, kind of going, what's the deal here? How does this work? What's going to happen? And, and again, part of what's so great about a movie like California Split is, you know, there have been a billion movies made about gambling. And yet I don't remember one where I had so little sense of. Are people going to end up dead? Are they going to end up rich and famous? Are they going to, I had like, you know, you have no idea. I'll just like the characters of where this is going to go. Yeah. Uh, And you even get a sense of that, that uh, allure or that, that what's so intoxicating about living on the edge is at the same time you're sitting there going, Oh, you poor idiots. And you know, you schmucks and you're treating that woman so horribly. And and, you know, you're, you're kind of feeling distance on one level, but you're also right in there with them getting the adrenaline rush when something goes well and feeling that, and, so you're you're it's 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 a weirdly both subjective and objective experience to watch probably any Altman movie, but certainly California Split has it. I just think it's a very undersung movie because whatever it 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 kind of flew under the radar even critically at the time, and then you know got hung up with all sorts of rights in the video. Situ- you know, it's, there's mm-hmm. never been the, the the full version has never been released on video because I guess there's music right issues. At least that's what I've always heard. Um, so even the version that's available now is, is you know, missing a couple of minutes of, of footage because they couldn't separate out pieces of music they couldn't get licensed for. And then in other places, the score has been changed theoretically much to its, you know, to its, uh, to its harm. I, it's funny. I, I was able to track down online a, a version of the uncut version. Oh, really? Uh, hmm. But, yeah, I mean, it was like just I had to go snooping around the gray markets of, you know, download sites and <laughs> – but the problem was it was it was in the wrong aspect ratio, and so it was terrible to watch. And you know, so I, I actually didn't hang all the way enough to go. Well, what was really different? Because it was just like you were missing. It was it was you know they had it in, in one seven eight instead of two three five. So you're 
missing half the the, the frame. Yeah, that'd, that'd be annoying. It's, the cuts aren't so deep that it's really worth watching this movie in a terrible way. Um, but yeah, that said, yeah, for anybody anybody who hasn't seen it, do not let the fact that there have been some changes made dissuade you. This is not a case, even like New Leaf, which I also wouldn't let dissuade you, but this is not a film that was re-edited. It was just for video. There were songs they couldn't get the rights to, so they had to either pl- replace music or in a couple of cases make some minor picture cuts. But they don't sound like things that change the real integrity of the story. They're just it means there's a few bad edits and a few kind of like weird little lumps that or, or a few places where the music is kind of dorky and bad where in most cases it's great, but it's not, it doesn't damage the film. I mean, it's a, it's a very small fly enjoyment. Yeah, for sure. And I could, I could watch Elliot Gould and George Siegel get drunk and sing songs in a parking lot all day long. Uh, you know, this may be my favorite performance for both of them. I think you're right. I mean, Wow. I do love the long goodbye, obviously. Yes. <laughs> yes. Although I love that movie less for his performance than for the whole movie. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Sure. This to me seems like in some ways a more complicated and difficult role. That's That movie is complicated and difficult. Yeah. But ruled by nature of his character is sort of, <clears throat> sort of floating through this screwed up world. Yeah. Yeah. No, Here, exactly. The, the, the pain that both of these guys are in. And these, again, were actors that were not – know that we're not usually seen as super deep actors we're seen as really good screen presence actors and but both of these characters are, are guys you know putting good time faces on a lot of hurt and it's really i think impressive how deep they go in the moments that they find when they let those things out uh and sometimes in very subtle ways it's not always you know crying and screaming and i mean the end of the movie which again i won't get too specific about but you know there's it's really quiet yeah but it's incredibly emotional um, and it's and it's almost what isn't said or what isn't acted that gives it its power. But to me, sometimes that's that's the best screen acting is you know is isn't when people are sitting and weeping and gnashing teeth, but there's just <laughs> that little thing in their eye that you can see where you go, wow, you're hurting, and yeah, life is really hard, and I, they let you experience it rather than them demonstrating it. I love the power of a quiet ending. I it's like uh, history of violence is one. Mm-hmm. Big Night, especially. Oh, Ooh, yes. That, One of the best endings of any movie. Exactly. For sure. And, yeah, I mean, he's just, he has this, Altman has this really joyful but sad tone. And that sort of plays into their friendship. Like, it's, it could be defined as codependent, certainly. And it's like, but you also get caught up in just this portrayal of addiction, which is something that, again, we've seen on a lot of movies. Like, mm-hmm. I think when Mississippi Grind came out, I described it as if Alexander Payne directed California Split. <laughs> <laughs> you know? That's it, really good. It sort of, yeah, it sort of had, I mean, clearly he, the filmmaker behind that one must have seen California Split uh, and just said, you know what, I want to make, make something in that spirit. Uh, with with Ben Mendelsohn and Ryan Reynolds, who really surprised me with that performance yes. too, but no, this is this is this keeps shooting up in my list of Altman movies. It it, it, it it gets higher and higher as a favorite for me. The more I watch it, like this is my third or fourth time, and I think this is this this was the time I'm like, okay, yeah, this is one of the all time greats from the seventies for sure. I think I had that reaction the first time I saw it even because I had low expectations. And mm. as we know, sometimes with movies, you know, or with anything, I guess, 
um, expectation can really affect you one way or the other. You know, if you're overhyped on something, even if it really is great, like the first time I saw Citizen Kane, I was like, I, all I'd done my entire life was here. It was the greatest movie ever made. So I was like really disappointed because uh, it was just a movie. And sure. then yeah. Peter Buick went, no, that's a great movie. Um, but I think it can work the other way. I think this California Split was a movie that, you know, critics were like, well, it's interesting. It's a, sort of a failure, but an interesting failure. And then it wasn't really seen much and revived much. And it was, it had sort of been, so I didn't, when I watched it, when I was like trying to, well, I want to see all of Robert Altman's movies. I, I wasn't expecting a great movie. And so I think because of it, all the more, I was like caught off guard by how amazing it was and how emotional it was and how, how funny, but in that cringy sort of upsetting way. And, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, you know, so I, I think I loved it from the first time I saw it because I wasn't, I hadn't been told over and over again, you must love this movie. And sometimes that's the best favor you can do a movie is not overhype it because, you know, tell somebody something's the greatest thing ever. It's really hard to live up to that. Even if it really is the greatest thing ever. Yeah, and a quick footnote, uh, within the past year or so, I caught up with The Hot Rock uh, with, with, with uh, oh, Robert. God, I haven't seen that in years. Yeah, yeah, and George Siegel's in that. It's just, it's such a fun heist movie that when you're watching it, you're, you're kind of like, it's clearly Soderbergh must have been a fan of this. Because uh, <laughs> it's, it's just a playful heist movie with Robert Redford and George Siegel and uh, Zero Mostel. So I, I, people should check well, I remember, that one. Out. I remember as a kid, I really loved it. I, re- I remember, I remember like dragging my parents back to it a couple of times. Yeah, I think uh, it was recently released. I want to say Twilight Time put it out. Uh, but it's certainly possible. I might even have a copy. I'm one of those obsessive, stupid collectors of films where I have a lot of things I don't even know I have. <laughs> you know, it's, it's it's kind of the sickest part of my brain is you know I collect I collect movies the way some people collect books or whatever. So. I don't remember if I even have a copy of it, but I haven't watched it, certainly. If I did get a copy of Father Time, but I probably never sat down and watched it, which now you're inspiring me to do, because I remember so enjoying it, but it's long enough that I actually don't remember the specifics of it. I just remember thinking it was a lot of fun. Yeah, it's it's pretty much... Well, <laughs> I was watching it going, oh, I could see why Sneakers was made. Because <laughs> <laughs> clearly, and that's a movie that I'll, I adore and have watched a lot just because it's fun. You know, and it's just like well, a simple a heist great, movie great genre. You should do a, a show sometime on like on like fun, cape, fun but really smart caper film. That's a good idea. That's a whole genre onto itself, and there's a lot of ones that aren't fun or, or are dumb, but the ones that are smart and fun are great. Yeah, for sure. And Sneakers is one of those. And uh, boy, this movie, this next one for for me is it's one of my favorites, but. It just makes me really sad. And that's chilly scenes of winter. What do I want? I want to marry Laura. That's what I want. I thought everybody knew that. Charles loves Laura. Laura likes Charles. I want to sleep with you. Wait a minute. Charles would marry Laura tomorrow. Wait a minute. (laughs) But Laura's already married to a guy called Ox. Joan Micklin Silver's Chilly Scenes of Winter. <laughs> now I'm no longer alone. A comedy about people trying to connect in a disconnected world. I don't think you're that great. As a matter of fact, there's quite a few things about you that I don't like. Yeah? Name one. It's different. It's offbeat. And it's always on target. Yeah. You heard me. I love your wife. 
Uh, you show very good taste. It's about temptation. The Lord have mercy on your soul. Thank you. Contemplation. Adoration and accusation. Are you seeing someone else? And my good friend and supporting characters host, Bill Ackerman, introduced this to me, and I've seen it a couple times. It's, oh, you want to talk about, oh, <laughs> masculinity and toxic masculinity gone awry, uh, and just the, the fracturing of the male psyche and, and dealing with re- relationships, and it's just a marvelous showcase for... Mary Beth Hurd and John Hurd that even yes. when he, even when he pops in something like After Hours I almost now associate him with this movie more than anything else because he makes such an impression in this and uh Cutter's Way another great movie uh but to me this was like Albert Brooks's modern romance before modern romance you know cuz he's 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 borderline stalking this woman at times yeah it's it's incredibly Again, ahead of its time, another woman filmmaker making, you know, making a film about the male psyche. Who we recently fan. lost, unfortunately. But oh, yeah. yes. And, and, you know, and, and another connection. For, you know, it's so funny. This list of films that you had was full of very personal connections, I guess, because that's when I was working a lot as a young. Because I did a play that Joan Sil- Micklin Silver directed. Oh, wow. And loved her. I thought she was wonderful. I, I, I was really a very, very happy experience. And, and we did this off-Broadway play called Album. Um, that I ran for months and months and months, and and she was a wonderful director and a wonderful person, and and a bit of an a bit of now a forgotten filmmaker, but she was really important. I mean, at a time when women were not making films, I mean, yeah, we had Elaine who did A New Leaf, but she made one movie every like nine years, it seemed like. Uh, but Joan was one of the only really working American women making films, getting you know finding a way to get that done, uh, and made some wonderful movies. I mean, I I think Hester Street's great. I think. Uh, between the lines is great, yeah. uh, but this is this is the film that I think has the most emotional impact that stays very current. Uh, again, it's a t- film that's very timeless. There's not a much, you know, I hadn't, I hadn't seen it in a number of years when I rewatched it for this, and you know, it's there's nothing that couldn't be now. I mean, again, other than like phones looking different, um, you know, his and that weird male thing of he's really charming and. You kind of want him to get the girl, but you kind of think you're stalking her and yeah. you're crazy. And and the thing that really stuck out for me this time is how freaking entitled the guy is, which I think is very male. You know, he thinks he deserves the girl because he wants her. You know, it's like – and he wants his idea of her. I mean the thing that Mary Beth's her character keeps trying to say is, are you in love with me or are you in love with some idea that you've decided I am? Oh, yeah, the and scene where they me. walk out of the uh, cinema – Ooh, yeah, what she says to him, I'm like, oh, I've kind of heard that before. <laughs> uh, and it's a really interesting thing that movies don't often look at, which is that love often teeters on a line between uh, something honest and true and great and something fa- fantasized, and that your love object can easily become a an unrealistic object that mm. you that you, that what you fall in love with isn't really the person; it's the, it's your idea of the person, and then you're frustrated that they're not what you decided they were. Um, and that's a complicated thing and it's a difficult thing. And I think it, I think all love relationships have had at least moments of that. Um, but this film really goes far into it. And, and another thing that goes through a lot of the films that you picked is that a character characters that walk very fine lines between being likable and unlikable. Oh, totally. Like, 
like and, and actors and directors finding a way to make it work that you know John Hurt is charming enough and vulnerable enough and sweet enough and and has enough real feelings I think for you know Laura the Mary Beth Hurt character that you do want things to be okay for him but not at the same time stopping you from going and you're really screwed up and need some help yeah um and you're not really being an adult here uh and you're acting like a spoiled child and and somehow managing to have both of those things be simultaneously true um but it is it's still way ahead of most american films about love i think yeah it it really um it it goes to very complicated places that romantic comedies and quotes just don't in america yeah, it's sort it's sad, but it sort of diminishes rewatches of something like uh, Five Hundred Days of Summer or even High Fidelity for me, because uh-huh. I'm like this just feels more true and honest and genuine without like some of the more like gimmicky sequences or breaking the fourth wall stuff. I mean, it's it has a little bit of that mm-hmm. here and there, but in ways that I don't. I don't necessarily find as, as grating or jarring or like now it's, it's funny when, when I first saw high fidelity, I'm like, Oh yeah, that John Cusack guy is me. I totally get it. And now watching it, I want to punch him in the face. (laughs) 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 You know, it's such a weird turnaround for some movies as you age, like, and just watching guys be codependent irks me. But at the same time, like, yeah, I know I I definitely cross boundaries or, you know, certainly yeah. have had those moments in, in relationships. And this movie kind of captures that almost from beginning to end in ways that I, I'm astonished by. I know it originally had a more happy ending, which you can actually see on YouTube, I believe. Yes. But, yeah, I actually saw both versions of it when it came out because I was I knew Joan and, and you know, liked her and was rooting for her. And- <laughs> um, and or, or actually I worked with her after this but it was shortly after so I guess I saw both in again I lived in revival houses in New York so I think I don't know if I saw them when they came out or when they both played um, but yeah and the happy ending version boy really does not work um, <laughs> no. and I feel like there were other little changes too I feel like the ending was different but I also feel like there were just little other re-edit things and I don't remember what they were and I could be making that up I, I haven't gone to I know there are websites out there that will tell you every single change between any given movie that was reworked or, but, but I just remember it had a whole different feeling and that the ending also really did feel terribly stuck on. I mean, the happy ending just felt like what just happened um, because yeah. it's not a happy ending movie. I mean, it's just, you know, you can't take a movie that's designed to be bittersweet and complicated and, you know, the sadness of love and suddenly go, and everything's fine. It just doesn't work. And I think Hollywood <laughs> tried to do it for years and, it's almost always a terrible decision. Uh, but so rare that a filmmaker gets the chance to do what Joan did, which was to kind of get the film back in a way and be able to go back to her version and take that stupid head over heels title off of it and go back to, I mean, what a weird choice. I mean, you know, here's a, a really known, respected novelist. You know, it's not like, not like people didn't know that book, Chili Scenes of Winter. Right. And mm-hmm. so to take that name off of the book and stick a dopey, like head over heels, meaningless title on it was Ugh. what? Like, why, what, what was that about? Um, and, you know, and, and, and how nice that for once it was actually vindicated that, that the, the version that has a much more complicated ending, it's, you know, and, and, and rich feeling 
and the more you know somber title, Chili Scenes of Winter, did much better not only critically but even commercially. The the happy ending version died because people it felt phony, and which is why they let let Joan go back and 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 re, rework it and go back to where she wanted it to be, and and how lovely that for once that worked and that you know it actually found a following when it was the way it was supposed to be. Yeah, and I think. I mentioned this when I talked about it with Bill, but my first experience with with Joan's work, of all things, was this movie that played on HBO a lot when I was younger called Big Girls Don't Cry, They Get Even. <laughs> it's not a very Jack, good movie. I've never seen. I, I'm embarrassed to admit. It's... It's 90s. <laughs> right. It's, it, right. You, if you watch it now, you'd be like, wow, this is very early 90s sensibility. But you got Griffin Dunn and David Strathairn and Adrian Shelley, uh, Jenny wow. Lewis. Oh, my. You know? I'm like, I had no idea who the, all those people were when I was when I first saw this on HBO as a teenager or whatever. But I was like, this is kind of charming. <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But, you know, you watch, it's it's kind of forgettable, you know, similar to Loverboy, which came out around the same time. Right, but, right. I do remember that, yes. Yeah, but she's a remarkable filmmaker and someone I'd like to focus on for an episode, for sure, because of how strongly I feel about this one. Uh, and oddly enough, uh, Bill Ackerman, who's somebody you should definitely talk to at some point, because he's... He's one of the smartest people I know about cinema in general and has a great podcast where he interviews people like you. Uh, and <laughs> he also told me about Scarecrow, which I I know I've heard the title and obviously I've seen the video cover art when I worked at a video store. For some reason, I just never caught up with it. Max and Lion, the prospective owners of Maxie's Car Wash. All they have to do is get to Pittsburgh. But between California and Pennsylvania, there are a lot of ups. <laughs> Drinks on the house for everybody! And a lot of downs. Max and Lion, the future owners of Maxi's Car Wash, Pittsburgh, PA. catch up with this a lot sooner because of Hackman and Pacino alone, you know, um, because we're, we're talking a lot about films that have these contrasting personalities and, and, and the friendships that evolve or self-destruct more or less. I, well, I just, and, I love buddy movies on the run. Good hearts also runs through a lot of these movies, you know, not every yeah. single one, you know, these are two terribly damaged characters that you really care about in mm. spite of yourself. Yeah. It, it might be, again, one of the, all of these are great, but one of the best movies of the 70s, due to my love of these actors, kind of at the top of their game. And, you know, any film about con men, drifters, people on the run, you know, and it seems like this was the golden age for those types of stories and settings. And yet, what a what a powerful ending, truly, you know, and ha having something to say about mental health, at, at the, you know, at, the, at that time and certainly what Pacino's character went through. And it's just, it's heartbreaking. It's a heartbreaking movie that also has incredible moments of 
fun and and levity that you won't forget and again these these two actors are just um, among the best ever and watching yeah, them together sure, is I think a among treat. their best performances ever. I think yeah. both Pacino and Hackman are, who are, you know, yeah, two of our best actors of our time. And this is two of their best performances together. Mm-hmm. And also what they bring out of each other. I mean, they really, you know, there's a, you know, it, there, there's a time when great performances are great, but then when you see great actors, especially in a film like this, it's all about this relationship. It's essentially almost a two hander film. I mean, they're, some wonderful supporting actors and wonderful scenes. And, but this is basically these two men and what they got from each other as actors. I mean, I would have loved to have been a a fly on a wall for the rehearsal process and the shooting process, because I don't know if there was improvisation going on. I don't know what, but there's some level that they were feeding each other as performers. and, And that just to me is remarkable because this relationship that they create is so complicated. I mean, these two guys, these two drifters that kind of stumble into a friendship, basically, um, you know, it's so full of love and hate and anger and need. And I mean, it's like watching a marriage, you know, it's like sort of scenes from a marriage, but with these two male drifters who, you know, it's never sexual, but it's a marriage in every other sense. Yeah. Um, and, I don't know. His performances are just amazing and complicated, and the characters are. I mean, you know, you know, a Cackman's a in some ways an awful guy. He's a bully. He's angry. He's violent, and yet he is so heartbreaking. He's so you know, you just want him to be okay. You want Pacino to be okay, and you see what they're up against in a world where being you know broke and a little crazy makes it really hard to survive. And so they kind of try, and it it <coughs> it somehow. <coughs> transcend so many you know traps because it could be so easily for sort of saccharine or or it could have been just depressing or it could have been you know because you're taking two melodramatic sort of homeless drifters yeah. who are kind of crazy i mean it sounds like a bad lifetime movie now i mean right. and yet it's elevated to this amazing poetic level and again it had that thing i'm talking about these 70s movies had where it's very naturalistic moment to moment but the whole feel of the piece is very poetic in the end. It doesn't just feel like, oh, we just watched what could have been a documentary. It feels very cinematic and and like a great novel in a way. And and it's very episodic. There's no real plot, you know, as such. But yet it never feels like, oh, there's no plot. It never feels like, oh, well, nothing's happening. It feels like there's somehow what they managed to find, what chats were going to create, whatever, editing. What, there's a forward momentum even though nothing specific is happening in a kind of linear way. Oh, this leads to this leads to this. And yet the whole piece does feel like it's leading to something. And it is ultimately, but without all the trappings that we usually have a plot where in the first five minutes, we know, Oh, that's what this person's doing. And that's going to be what we're going to watch. Um, Somehow it doesn't do that. And yet you never feel like, why am I watching this or where is it going? It's always fascinating. And it really does all pay off and does all add up into something very, I think you're right, very, very moving ending mm-hmm. that it's really earned. Uh, and I think it's one of the earlier, really, you know, earlier cases of that kind of poetic realism that, that I feel like people are going back to playing with today. I mean, I, you know, a film like a film like Nomadland, I think, has some of that. Oh, yeah, you know, for sure. It's, it's very naturalistic, but yet it's not a naturalistic film. 
you know, the yeah. performances and all those people feel very real in Nomadland. And in many cases, they are real. I and mean, they use a lot of real people. And yet you feel there's a bigger there's a bigger imagination that's taking you through this tale. And I think Scarecrow really has that feeling. Yeah, this just has one of those meaningful friendships that, you know, I, I, I just immediately connect with, even if it doesn't reflect certain friendships I've had. I understand the feeling, you know, it's like, and at the same time, this is also a cool hangout movie with a bromance, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and, but it it has these mood swings or these changes in tone. I I think when I recently talked about my own private Idaho, I used the tone uh, or I used the term tonal whiplash that can be very, difficult to process sometimes with certain movies. I don't, I wouldn't say that this one does that in the, certainly not to the degree that something like my own. Yeah, no, it, it, has, it's, but. It's, it has a consistency that, yeah, that I think, I think, you know, uh, Gus Van Zandt was actually skewing. He was very intentionally, I didn't want that, but I do think this, <laughs> this does have comedy and drama, but it does to me feel very sculpted and of a piece. Sure. Yeah. And just again, Hackman's run in the seventies is, uh, so strong it it's it's kind of shocking when you think about french connection conversation night moves like that to me yeah. is a perfect trilogy in of itself and then you add this on top of it good lord <laughs> you know I'm, I'm i'm a little sad he retired but man did he leave a legacy behind <laughs> although it's so funny because i feel like yet another person that a little bit is now underappreciated yeah, uh, yeah. I feel like when you talk to younger people today, when they oh – God, now I really sound like my grandfather. These young people <laughs> today. Um, but, you know, if I work with a young actor or whatever and I talk about Hackman, he's not a touchstone. I mean, Pacino is a touchstone. There are people that you can bring – that I grew up on that I can still talk to a 25-year-old actor and they know what I'm talking about. Hackman, for whatever reason, hasn't maintained that kind of uh, position in people's minds, and yet his work – is certainly absolutely of a level with De Niro and Pacino and, you know, all the other that, you know, Dustin Hoffman, that the great, you know, handful of actors that came out of that seventies era. Um, but for whatever reason, maybe because he retired, did less stuff more recently, but, but he's just not remembered as, as being that kind of a force, but man, he was, he was one of those actors that was great and everything. Even when he was in, Movies that were less great, he was always great. I mean, he was one of those people who just elevated whatever he was in. But yeah. give him a great piece of material, and he would take it, you know, as far as it could go. Another great actor from that period would be Jack Nicholson, <laughs> of course. Yes, although not forgotten and not and and definitely still appreciated. Yes, uh, Carl Knowledge. Now, this is one I I really like a lot, but it's just not a pleasant experience. So, you know, like I. I, I can't actively revisit it just because people are so cruel to each other in this movie in ways that, you know, kind of remind me of what Neil LeBute would go on to do with uh, yes. In the Company of Men and Your Friends but and Neighbors. To me, I mean, look, this is probably my very favorite of all these movies because I think it is. Ooh, okay. It, it brings together, and it is it is a disturbing experience, and it is an, it is, it is an unflinchingly disturbing experience. Mm. But I think the combination of acting cinematic style that that Nichols brought that is genius. I mean, there's shots in this thing that I haven't seen people do that 
before or since, and yet it never feels like showing off. I mean, it's an incredibly stylized movie, and yet for me, every one of those shots has tremendous meaning. Yeah. You know, when there's a wall that's sliding up forever behind Rita Moreno's head or whatever, it's it's not just, oh, look at this cool image. It's like we are being put subjectively in the mind of, of somebody experiencing the world in an incredibly fucked up way. Which is challenging. Every, it's challenging to experience that sometimes. Yes, it is, it's not, oh, it's not a comfortable movie. I mean, these are terrible characters in, in many ways. I mean, Jules Pfeiffer, who wrote it, was known for, you know, his sardonic, dark view of, of humanity. Mm. It is very funny. I mean, it, it, oh, you know, sure. there are times where it, it's a very laugh-out-loud funny movie at moments, but in, a, in always in a painful way. And the way Nichols uses his character to put you in people's heads, and often one of the things that he's done, and people have done it before, but I don't know if I've ever seen it done better, the way often he will focus on the person that isn't speaking. I mean, there are times in the movie where you literally have a 90-second or two-minute-long shot of someone who doesn't have a line while the dialogue's going on around them. And to me, it's one of the things that you can only do in a movie. You can't do it on stage. You can't do it. I mean, you know, he's saying, yeah, the other people are talking. Watch what this person's going through. And it's remarkable in terms of directorially and also emotionally what you what it puts you through as an audience because you – experience what Candace Bergen is going through in that scene where the two guys, you know, in her life are talking and laughing and she's trying to be part of it and she doesn't ever open her mouth, but you go through this emotional nightmare with her that if it was, this scene was shot in any sort of normal way, you just would never would because you'd be too busy cutting to the guys talking and saying nonsense. And, and the film consistently does that, whether it's with jump cuts, whether it's with the way he moves the camera, it's, it's always putting you deeper inside the people and inside their experience and inside their emotions and inside how they're seeing the world. And it's talk about toxic masculinity. It's sure. the ultimate toxic masculinity film. And, you know, maybe it's because I grew up with a dad who had elements of the Nicholson character, you know, who I think my dad was a weird guy because he was sort of a feminist and sort of a misogynist. And he was, you know, he was that that guy who came out of that era where, where what a man was, was very confused mm-hmm. um, yeah. and had, you know, he had a very kind of edgy, almost violent streak to him and yet could be very tender. And so the, the, but you know, the Nicholson character, this was like the dark side of my father. And so I think it was very personal for that, but also recognizing, and it's really disturbing too, watching this film again. And it's, you know, now 40, it's 50 years old this year. Um, you know, how little has changed. I mean, yeah, the uh, yeah, dialogue totally. changed. You know, we don't use the same words, but the way men often, and there are, yes, I think there are probably more liberated, hipper young guys that are getting, you know, I'm hopeful that there's change. I certainly, when I talk to young people, I feel like there's change. But I think a lot of men still relate to women and sexuality the way these guys do. And that sex is about proving yourself. It's about... Mm proving your masculinity more to another male than even to the woman. It's about respect. It's about um, domination. It's about control. Um, These are not issues that have gone away. And, you know, I I hadn't seen the film in a a handful of years, and I was amazed at, A, how upset and moved I was all over again, but also going, yeah, you know, you change a few details, you could make this movie today. and that's really disturbing to think that in 50 years we've, we haven't moved further than this very dark place where sex is really a substitute for some damaging, damaging behavior. And, you, you know, you think about the Me Too movement, you think about the Harvey Weinstein, you think about – and you go, yeah, I, what's different? 
No um, kidding. You know, and and so for me, it's a remarkable, remarkable movie, and I and I think truly fits under your category of overlooked movies because you know Nichols is such a figure in his films. You know, The Graduate, whatever, so known and loved, and yet this film, partly because it hasn't been available in a good video version. I mean, I had to import it from Japan to get a Blu-ray. Um, you know, it, it hasn't helped it have the life that it deserves, but I think it's, you know, it's arguably among Nicholson's very, very, very short list of best performances. I mean, it's an insanely brilliant performance. He is so disturbing and so hateful. And yet again, you get pulled into him yeah. in spite of yourself. Um, and I think Candace Bergen has never been this good. I think Anne Margaret is remarkable. I mean, they actually, they actually both keep up with Nicholson and Art Garfunkel who gets made fun of a lot is I, actually not bad at all. I mean, I kind of, yes, that's the only, I, I, I wouldn't say I agree with the consensus on him, but he, he, I don't think he's as strong as everybody else, but he, at the same time, he holds, he holds his own. I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll give and, him that. And that is where, where Nichols being a great director, you know, edits it well and creates it. So you don't, it doesn't take anything away from the movie. I mm. mean, it's too bad in a way that he didn't hire somebody amazing in that role, but Garfunkel actually ultimately is fine and, and does no damage to the right, movie. Right. Um, and, and, you know, certainly isn't distracting. I mean, he's natural and he seems real and he's, you know, and he captures a certain kind of creepiness, you know, like Nicholson ca- ca- captures the, the unafraid to admit it, horrible, you know, id ego male. And, you know, Garfunkel captures the, I'm pretending to be sensitive and I'm just as fucked up as the other guy kind of guy. And he does capture it. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, and it's just fun. It's funny when I was looking at Mike Nichols filmography, uh, closer is very close to carnal knowledge. I'm like, it's, I wouldn't say it's a remake. But they're they're but, different. No, there's definitely echoes. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say that, I'd say that playwright must've been influenced by carnal knowledge. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. It's funny, I hadn't really sat and thought about it, but when you're saying it, it seems like, yeah, yeah, that 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 inevitably is true. Yeah, but no, he's had some, he's, even something like The Birdcage, I kind of have a soft spot for. Uh, and Primary Colors is very underrated. I don't know if Absolutely. you've talked about oh, he's made a lot of underrated. It's funny, he's, yeah. he may be the best American filmmaker to be both lionized and underrated. <laughs> he's like... Somehow he's like seen as like this genius filmmaker, but then like half of his filmography is dismissed. Right. And yeah. only a few of them deserve to. I mean, he did make a few. I mean, you know, I don't know if Day of the Dolphin is a great movie. I actually <laughs> I don't think it's a terrible movie. No. It's but, it, you know, I mean, it, it's a little silly. But but I also respect the fact that he and again, another person from my life, more connections because, again, Mike Nichols and Elaine May and my parents and, you know. I knew Mike a little bit better because he was around a little bit more as, even when I was an adult when my parents were dying he was actually really kind and he oh. visited he was really good to them so I have a lot of warm memories about him as a human being um but uh but as a filmmaker I thought he was you know really nobody was was better in the in in the, in, in his era and you know that he competed his best films compete with anybody's films and yet because he 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 was so brave about kind of just doing some stuff for fun, you know. Not everything was was earth shattering, and I think because of it, now people forget. We talk about a run of amazing films. I mean, Carnal Knowledge and The Graduate, and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? And I mean, when you take his ten best movies, you can kind of put it up against almost anybody else's ten best movies. Yeah, and somebody who 
clearly had a lot of accomplishments in theater and did an amazing adaptation of Angels in America. Uh, oh God, yes. What well, talk about talk about again underrated and overlooked. I should watch I, that again. It's been a long time. I th- since it, it first it, aired, I think that's when I watched it. Great. I mean, it is really, and I had loved the play, and 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 sure. I thought the theatrical experience was amazing. And I was I was a bit dubious about how do you capture something that was so uniquely theatrical. And I thought he did an incredible job. I thought yeah. that I thought it it utterly flourished in a new medium that I was dubious could be done, and he found a way to do it. There's a lot of funny So this next one might be my favorite discovery of the bunch, and I watched it a month or so ago for the Roy Anderson episode. Ah, uh, and he has since become one of my favorites, even though he's only too. made five movies or six, five or six. No, maybe like six, seven movies now. Um, well, let's see. The Swedish Love Story, Kill Up. Uh, you the living songs on second floor. Uh, uh, on endlessness. Uh, and then pigeon, pigeon, and pigeon. So six features, and then a bunch of shorts and things. Oh and yeah, just... he he was just like churning out commercials. Uh, oh yeah, his commercial reel, which is I think again floating around on the internet, is a lot of fun. Uh, no doubt. And this Swedish love story. Oh boy, do I love this period of coming of age and. <laughs> Your first love and your first crush, and uh, and yet it's a lot of it's not through dialogue at all. It's just through these um, actions of you know being a being a teenager, and and yet you're not very verbose. You're more of just all about feeling, and then mm-hmm. this movie captures that feeling so well. And just like again, another sort of hangout movie, but with you know your first major crush and. It just and and then these unexpected moments, like some of the songs and like that club those those teenagers hang yeah. out at. I'm like, what is this? This is amazing. How how have I never seen this or heard of it? Or it, it you know it's never probably it's probably never gotten a proper release of any kind. Uh, it's very hard to find, but boy, it's become one of my favorite movies. I I, I loved every frame of this movie. Well, I, I, my feeling with it is I just don't think there's, I've ever seen a film that captured the, the visceral experience of first love the way this did. I mean, yeah. in a way, there's so really, many of those movies, but yeah, this is so strong. <laughs> but this was mine. This was the one. And I think a lot of people felt that where I, you know, that's what's remarkable about the movie is a lot of people I've talked to go, oh, that was what it felt like for me. Yeah. Well, you know, you made a really good film when a lot of people go, that's what it felt like for me. Um, you know, and to me, it captured, and I didn't have anything like this particular relationship in this story. Right, right. But that combination of fear and yearning and sexiness and 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 confusion and not knowing what to do, but also being carried along by your heart and your hormones, and it just captures something with such honesty. And I do, I completely agree with you. The lack of dialogue is amazing. I mean, it, it, it sometimes feels like it's silent film for sections where it's just people looking at each other. And But, man, it captures something about that first 
passion. And I love the fact that it is sexual. I love the fact that, you know, there isn't a sex scene, but the sexuality hasn't been drained of it. I think often when you see a film about teenagers, you know, it's either they have sex, she gets pregnant and it's terrible and it's, you know, a bad thing or it's young love and sex has nothing to do with it. And here's a case where clearly there's an implication that they, they get sexual and the draw clearly has a physicality and a carnality to it. That's also utterly sweet and innocent and and (laughs) endearing. I was worried, you know, I was worried when they start, making out a little bit i'm like is this gonna get creepy and the film and obviously i wasn't anticipating that as a possibility but you're right it's it's more about the curiosity and you know just certainly these these two people they do get very intimate no doubt about that but it's not done in this creepy way that i I worry about yeah it manages to be a film with 15-year-old kids who probably have sex where you don't feel like I feel dirty and weird for having mm-hmm. just watched Yeah, exactly. Um, and in fact, just the opposite. I mean, it made me fall back in love with my wife. It made me, you know, it, it's such an embrace of of passion and the sweetness of passion and, and, the, and, the, and the complexity of it and, 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 you know, how innocent it is. And yet, and yet we watch them grow up. I mean, you know, they're, they're very different in the course of the movie between when they started, where they finish. And, and at some of that has been a sexual awakening, even though you don't like watch it happen on screen. I mean, and to me, it's like some of the sexiest scenes I've ever seen in movies are in this movie because we're not watching them have sex and feeling creepy about it. Yep. So the kiss has tremendous power or the scene where they're the next morning after they've spent a night together and she's wearing the pajama tops and he's wearing the pajama bottoms are uber sexy without guilt you know without feeling like i shouldn't be looking at this and feeling this is sexy but it was a kind of nostalgic sexy it wasn't like oh i want to see what she looks like under that shirt it's more like i remember that i remember that first morning waking up next to somebody else and how amazing that is and and oh my god is this real and what just happened and you know he just captures those moments in ways that just have an honesty that i don't know that i've ever seen before or since in a movie and yet he doesn't neglect the parents either, you know? No, in fact, it's a very, it's an odd movie in that it sense. In that the last third of it really shifts focus largely. I mean, there's For kind sure. of a love story and it builds up to the point where they spend this night together and clearly they really are in love. And, and then the focus sort of moves somewhat over to being more of a political, social class satire about Sweden and about these fucked up weird parents that these kids have and you know families and one guy who particularly is sort of crazy and it's an odd and somewhat disconcerting switch because you're sort of caught up in this really just idyllic and sweet love story and then you're kind of all of a sudden involved in these crazy Swedish people but yet somehow it all ties together and it it's funny because it foreshadows where Anderson goes as a filmmaker I mean yeah if you watch this film first, you would never in a million years believe what Anderson spent most of his career doing, which is making these utterly surrealist, absurdist films that are unlike anybody else's. I mean, somebody described them as Ingmar Bergman meets Monty Python, which <laughs> I think is the best description I've heard. Yeah, um, for sure. But that's where he's made most of his movies. And this movie is so mostly just naturalistic and, and real. But then the, that last 30 to 40 minutes where it starts to get weird – you kind of go, oh, this is where this guy is going. 
this is this, these are the these are the interests that he's, are going to pull him forward beyond this as a filmmaker and the things he makes after this. Yeah, he's got an absurdist sense of humor, and it's here, but not in the way it was when he started doing those the, the movies where they're essentially vignettes. Yes, and everybody's in white face makeup, and yeah. I mean, it, they're the weird. If you haven't seen them, they're really amazing. I mean, he does these many, many minute long shots on these incredible sets. It's all built sets, um, you know, even when he, the exteriors and it's just surreal and but really about stuff. I mean, about again, about class, about society, about, uh, you know, Swedish society in general, but also just uh, the, the modern world, war, capitalism. Uh, you know, he made a short about sort of Nazi-esque executions that is devastating, mm. but they're all absurdist and surreal. And you see a little of that here as you're dealing with the two different families who are from two different classes. And and the thing that really struck me this time is how much the film is also about how unhappy everybody who isn't these kids are. It's like you've got these two kids who have some kind of innocence left and, and life is still full of, of, of possibilities. And then all the adults that I really are pretty miserable. I mean, from her older sister to the fathers to the mother, I mean, they're all nobody smiles very much in this film other than the two kids, um, which is a really sad thing in a way. I mean, I, that struck me much more this time around, you know, me the too. way he yeah. goes, they still have hope. All these other people have nothing but disappointment. Yeah. And, one of the final lines is I've wasted 45 years of my life, you know, and then he, he goes off on a trek on his own and then, <laughs> and then it's sort of bleakly comical. <laughs> what happens? Yeah. I will give yeah. it away, but, uh, and a very memorable final shot, you know, where it's just, again, it's, it's, it's a still shot framed of with this fog and everybody walking. And I kind of go, Oh, I, I, I expected this movie to end because we're, we're so built up with, with the central love story, but I'm also incredibly satisfied that it subverted my expectations and ended this way. Too. Yeah, because I think if it had just been the love story, it would have felt great, but it might have felt very limited. And because it sort of goes beyond, you also think about the love story in a bigger context. And mm -hmm. I think that actually gives it an, another level of value. For sure. Um, one that I had trouble tracking down is the Spider's Strategy. I can't say Strat it. I think it's Stratagem, but I, I can't. I can't. Yeah, this is the one you'll have to monologue on, kind sir. <laughs> okay. Well, it you know it, it's it's one that I stumbled into a, a while ago. Um, that mm. that I, I I think I got bought it on VHS because that was the only way you could see it um, years back, um, and I really really liked it. And then I finally you know in my obsessive way tracked down again. I think a Japanese Blu-ray, and I found you know downloadable uh, subtitles on the internet, and I. You know, on my computer, I was able to put the subtitles on the Japanese print of the film. So oh, nice. I actually have a reasonably good-looking copy of it. Cause it's, I think, one of Bertolucci's most underrated movies. It, it deals with a lot of the same themes and was made very close in time um, to The Conformist. I mean, they're both about about the, about the fascism in Italy. And uh, in The Conformist is more about the actual time of that. And, and Spider Stratagem is more about the uh the the lingering effects of it you know the 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 scars that were made 
in the psyche of it of the Italian world by having become a fascist country by basically having been in league with the Nazis and having you know a really dark presence take over their country for for a few years mm. um, and the story is basically that you know this guy goes back to the town where his father was murdered. His father was a renowned anti-fascist leader, uh, and he was shot to death in the town theater. And it's a smallish town. Um, and he sort of returns home to that town to sort of try to find out what happened to his dad. Uh, you know, he, what was the story behind it? And he gets to the town, and there's statues of his father, and the streets have been named after him. And his father has now been embraced as this, you know, great hero, you know, for, for being an anti-fascist fighter. And yet, of course, as he quickly finds, the real feelings in the town are much more complicated. And you probably could have made the same story about Germany after World War II, where, you know, how no one in Germany was, an, was a Nazi. And then no one in Italy was a fascist. And, you know, so he goes back to this town and starts stumbling into people's secrets and, and, and not only other characters, but his father's secrets. You know, and his father turns out to be a much more complicated character, as does everybody he meets. And, you know, there's a, there's a real sense of a thriller about it, which is kind of cool. There's, a, there's kind of a, you know, it, 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 it's very much an art film in some ways, but there's also this sense of this guy is in danger in this town and that somebody may kill him the way they killed his dad. Um, and he meets his father's old lover and he meets, and, and it's, it's also the Rashomon element of everybody in the town telling him their memories of his father and what happened and why, and nobody's story is quite matching up very well. Um, and ultimately, it's very disturbing and uh, powerful, and the revelations are not nice ones, and nobody comes off very well. Um, but it's it's very powerful about you know the effect that that evil has in a society, and how its tentacles are always much more complicated and deeper. I and mean, we, you know, we may see little versions of that when people talk about the Trump era fifty years from now. That, you know, people love to make, in times where countries go to dark places, they love to create a few really bad villains and a lot of heroes. And yet the reality is way more complicated than that. And it's more likely that there are a few real heroes and there are a lot of people that have some of the darkness in them. Um, and that's really what the movie's about and captures that really well. I don't think it's quite as great a film as Conformist because I think Conformist is better acted. Uh, and that's really, you know, an important part of these kind of character studies of these people. I think, you know, uh, Trondignon and, and, and conformist, the whole cast of conformists kind of <laughs> help take it to a new level or de or a deeper level. Yeah. This film is cast. A lot of people you've never heard of. I have a feeling a lot of these people were non actors were people that probably lived in the town. Um, and consequently what doesn't work is their ability to bring the level of complexity to the performances that are in the script. I mean, you get it because it's written into it, but I would have loved to have seen this movie made with great actors who could have embodied the complications and the contradictions, whereas now they often come off as very stiff or kind of crazy, and I don't know if they're supposed to seem crazy, you know. Um, uh, so, but it doesn't ruin it. I mean, it's like it, there is that weird Italian tradition of, you know, using real – Fellini did it all the time, using real people and real faces, and, and they do it well. So it, it, it works. It just – Seeing it again for the first time in, in, a, in, a, in a few years, I was frustrated thinking, oh, this is a really, really good movie and a really, really, really worthwhile movie. And it could have been like maybe his best movie if the acting had been up to the level of everything else. It's beautifully shot. There's, there's camera work. There's stuff that, you know, sort of um, 
predates that great last shot in the passenger that that are you know there's 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 move, camera movements that are just so striking and powerful and again feeding the story and the light is great i mean it, it, it's it's a really worthwhile film if, to try to track down but i feel like it's that one element of the performers not being up to everything else that keeps it as a really good really important film in the bertolucci canon hmm. instead of being the ultimate film in the bertolucci canon yeah bertolucci and antonioni are kind of blind spots for me to be honest i've i've seen the conformist and i've seen last emperor uh that's that's i think that's it uh i just you know for for obvious reasons i've yet to go see last tango in paris but <laughs> you know although you know if you can put aside everything we know about it it's a pretty yeah. fast movie i mean i sure. i i kind of went through that cycle where at first i couldn't watch you know I, i'd seen it when i was very young then i didn't want to rewatch it hearing about they, they said you know sexually abused seemingly an actress and it's like okay i can't you know, isn't really, I can't, can't be entertainment for me. And then about a year ago, I thought, let me just watch the movie. And you know, it's, it's got a lot of remarkable things about it. And, and Brando is incredible in it and captures something again about that generation of men. Again, a lot of my dad and that character, um, that is very valuable. And, and it doesn't take away from the darkness and awfulness of what was done on the set, but it still has, a, as a film has a lot of power to it. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll get to it <laughs> at some point. Um, I'm glad I'm, I'm glad I finally got to the landlord. Wealthy Elgar Enders never had the chance to live in a slum, so he bought one. Bonton Heights, that's its official name, will start a trend in urban renewal, Mr. Enders. This neighborhood's going to be very chic, very chic. Let's hope this influx of the uh, beautiful people is the beginning of an inclination. What is this we have? Yeah, the Elgar Enders, the new I own this house. I'm the new landlord. You have until the count of three. I am the new landlord. These arrows have been dipped in Fanny's barbecue sauce. Cigarette pops? Like it, I made myself. I have a disgust to meet you. Hi. I'm, uh, I'm Elgar Enders. My name's Lainey. William Jr. Oh, William Jr. Uh, Peter. Are you with Vista? Is this some sort of a new program or something? No, 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 no. That's Elgar. You think I'm white, don't you? <laughs> This real estate is very important to me. It's the most important thing I've ever done. I'm a Cancerian, and home is very important. You're a Leo. No, Mother, I'm a, I'm a Cancer. When were you born? The roof leaks. The toilet runs all day. I'm going to put it in a patio already. My, it's hot in here. It's really cool, Mr. Enders. You awful cute to be a landlord. Oh, we're uh, insecticide and deodorant. Is that carbonated? Oh! It's just ruthless. It's ruthless. Napalm. You can get at those hocks on better if you take your gloves off. I think there's something that you should know, Mother. What's that, dear? I think I love a girl who's a Negro. Didn't we all go together to see guess who's coming to dinner? Uh, Darren Hughes, actually, of, of Senses of Cinema, described it as like a black exploitation movie made by Buñuel. Uh, Ooh! I like Right? I and yeah. That's um, a great that's a, a really good line. I uh, know. That's why I stole it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I Buñuel's another discovery f for me in the past couple of years, particularly the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie. Like that's now one of my favorite movies. Um I love the absurdity of that. 
Uh, well, this... he, yeah, he was a master of that. And I, uh, again, I, I love that, but I also love some of Benwell's lesser known films like Milky Way. And I mean, I, I, he's, I need he's to see a lot more. more and, and I find with him, every time I go back to the films, I get something more. For sure. Like yeah. My fifth viewing, I'm definitely seeing things I didn't notice before. Um, but yes, there is definitely some of that here too. Yeah, this one uh, seems like it was ahead of its time. Uh, very much. Well, look, it's still it's still timely now, and it would still be considered edgy now. If you made this movie today, it would be controversial. It would be, you know, mm-hmm. because it deals with race in a really sort of intense way, and in a much more, uh, you know, there's nothing. It's very funny, but there's nothing kind of uh, cute about. It. There's nothing. There's nothing dealing with the com- complexities of racism in America that is kind of soft pedaled here. Um, and it makes fun of all the characters, white and black, although certainly much more of white. Um, but there's also, it's an, a unique thing because it's, it's very absurdist at times and very yeah. funny and very over the top, and especially in the white world. But it's also really tragic and affecting, especially in the black world. Um, but those two tones do some very odd and interesting dancing together. I mean, Ashby really did, I mean, for a first time as a director. Again, like I'm aware and certainly have seen several Hal Ashby movies, you know? I mean, clearly I'm a, I'm a fan as well as most cinephiles are. I, But, you know, watching this for the first time, I was a little worried because, again, not a fan of breaking the fourth wall and, you know, talking to the camera. But I, I warmed up to this. I mean, it, it, it's... It is like kind of being in a bumper car tonally at times, but I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. And and I I you know both I've always elevated Jeff Bridges to the point of like well I think he's my favorite actor, but I've never really seen Bo Bridges in this kind of performance and certainly mm-hmm. knock it out of the park completely here. Uh, and a fascinating portrayal of gentrification, racism, classism, and what happens when you have power over people. Uh, it's, yeah. it's, it's again, it's not always a pleasant experience, but certainly many moments uh, where you're laughing at just how ridiculous some, some characters can be in, in this movie. But again, and, and, Ashby and, and, is amazing. And, and the weird combination again of a character who, you know, Bo Bridges' character is very well intended and does some really ugly stuff. Um, you know, and because he's just naive. He's this witch white boy who like kind of <laughs> walks into this world and manages to be great in some ways, but horrifying in others, you know, and there's moments where even watching it, you go, do I laugh at this? Is this funny? Is this, yeah. is this okay? Is this, I mean, there's, you know, his use of the N-word at one point. There's <laughs> a couple of moments where you go, that's really fucked up. But then you kind of also understand everything in this movie is about context and everything is about, well, this is fucked up, but that's more fucked up. And, and, and yet it's very funny. And there's like stuff where you're laughing and going, I think I'm supposed to laugh at this. I think it's okay. (laughs) Um, But it is, it is disturbing. I mean, it's a movie that really makes you look at your own inherent racism, your own biases, your own, I mean, and, and, uh, you know, I would imagine would do it for a black audience as well as a white audience. I mean, it's a film that really makes everybody kind of go, where do I fit in this world where everything is so fucked up and everyone has been mistreated and, you know, the white people have mistreated and black people have been mistreated for so long that it's become almost bred into our genes at this point. And how do we start to undo that? And how do we start to connect as human beings? And it's, 
it's just very bold for a time, but it's very bold for right now. I mean, it's just like really, you know, I just find most things that deal with racism, particularly made by a white filmmaker around a white character, mm-hmm. are really wussy compared to this movie. And <laughs> this movie, you know, doesn't let the audience or the characters off the hook. And I think that's really powerful. And yet it's still very funny. I mean, it's there's some hysterically funny scenes. Some of the photographers, it's Gordon Willis shot it, and, you know, oh, God, yeah. the Godfather and, you know, and it's, it's gorgeous, you know, in spots. I mean, it's very rough hewn. I mean, it was made for, I think, not much money and it definitely, you know, feels rough edged, but it, it's beautifully lit. And it's, you know, it's one of those great movies that you laugh and you laugh and you laugh and you go, and now I have to like think about this. And I feel a lot of complicated stuff. Yeah. And I'm, I'm. I want to be challenged. I, I like movies that are complicated and, you know, you're siding with certain people at certain times because that's kind of what happens in life. And I, you know, it's just, it, but, you know, again, like you have to prepare yourself to be uncomfortable too. And that's, that's the case for a lot of these movies, honestly. Like, the, you know, if you, if you want the, and I understand wanting the safe escapist entertainment, and, and obviously I enjoy that, but here with, with a movie like this, or certainly the, the last one we'll talk about, Oh, lucky man, you, you, you have to sort of reacclimate what a movie is while you're watching yes. it. Yes. And I think, look, the best art generally is, is challenging. The best art challenges, I mean, you know, with exceptions, but, but, challenges both artistic preconceptions and also the way people see the world around them. <clears throat> I mean, that's what makes it important. That's what usually makes things last is that it kind of shook people out of their, their kind of comfy preconceived places of whether it's how a statue is supposed to look or, you know, or what is the nature of racism or what is, you know, those are the things that we really remember and that have deep effect on us. I mean, the things that are uncomfortable are, uncomfortable because they're getting deep within us yeah things that are easy are fun but they you know we don't tend to you know i'm much more interested as as a film goer and as a filmmaker but the things you come out of and go wow that was cool what do you want to have for dinner to me are just less interesting the things where you come out of going i don't know what to say i don't know what i think i i have to just like ponder and and it's just a much more valuable experience as a human being i remember vividly seeing Todd Salanz's happiness and walking out going, I don't know if I like how that movie made me feel Mm -hmm. (laughs) because it, 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 you know, and and yet again, it does have that awkward sense of humor, that discomfort that you might laugh at, but, you know, obviously because my mom went through, you know, some sexual abuse in her childhood, any portrayal of a pedophile automatically is like triggering or, sure. you know, and just like automatically I feel hate. And this movie is telling me not to feel that necessarily, but to empathize. So at the time I was like, oh man, I don't know if I can support this movie or if I like, but I also can't deny the fact that it actually made me feel empathy for a pedophile, you know, and yeah. it's like, and I never had that experience before. And it seems like a lot of the movies in the seventies were sort of tapping into that. Uh, and, you know, again, it's, it's as, as I've gotten older, I think I am becoming 
more attuned to the fact that people are really messed up, but I'm also accepting of the fact that we're all messed up. You well, know, and I also think that humanizing monsters, whether mm-hmm. it's a murderer, whether it's a pedophile, whether it's Adolf Hitler, doesn't mean that you're accepting of what they did. Right. Right. And in fact, the best way to change to fight fascism, racism, pedophilia, whatever, is not from just a place of dismissive hatred, but from a place of understanding, because that's what lets you maybe change the conditions that led to some of those things. Yeah. If you just dismiss somebody as a monster, that's kind of the end of the conversation. And there's not much you can do about it. Like, oh, they were born a monster and Hitler was just evil and that's all there is to it. When you go, nah, he was a human being. And somehow he actually reached a lot of other human beings who followed him into the grave. Then you go, oh, I got to dig deeper if I mm-hmm. don't want the next Hitler to come around. And I have a responsibility. And how do I know that if I had been in Germany at that time, I wouldn't have gotten sucked in the way millions of other people did? And I think that demonstifying monsters is a really important thing in art. And that doesn't mean you're saying that the monstrous things they do are okay. That that's a completely different issue. But you don't fight racism by just denying racism. You don't fight violence against women by just denying it exists. You don't fight. You fight these things by going, oh, my God, this is in all of us. So how do we stop it? Yeah. That's that's well said, man. I, I also, it's funny that we're ending on this one. I obviously we'll have some honorable mentions if you want to rattle off a few more. But, uh, oh, lucky man's an interesting one because I'm not I'm not as attuned to the British New Wave, and this might might have been the one I liked the least only because it was so long. And that's not, it's not to say I didn't admire it though. You know, I it's very long. It's inventive. It it certainly has concern for, you know, social matters with its, you know, call to withdraw from the evils of modern life. Uh, You know, clearly it had an influence maybe on Clockwork Orange. It was weird to see Malcolm McDowell get experimented on again. I was like, oh, Mm -hmm. that looks familiar. It's a big challenge. Do you think you're up to it? I know I am, sir. The entire population of India could be rehoused on the moon within 10 years. It's only a matter of learning to live in a new way. <laughs> You're so greedy. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, I mean, it's, again, I think it's one when I watch again. Now that I know what I'm in for, I will respond to it a little bit more. Uh, but, you know, at the same time, I was like, hmm. Like I had, there was a question mark hanging over my head through a lot of it, but in interesting ways. Like I, again, I think, you know, so, something more recent, like so, so, um, "Sorry to Bother You," mm-hmm. you know, is like ha- th- this really sort of strong sense of s- social satire that, you know, clearly is it, the messages here, you know, are a critique on imperialism and technology and just all these clashing ideologies of the time. 
maybe it's because I'm not familiar with you know the, what this country was going through at that period. Maybe there's a disconnect there. But I mean, cool soundtrack. <laughs> with <laughs> I love the I love the songs, and and, and certainly Malcolm McDowell's great as always. Uh, I but I I think I need to see it again before I can officially say whether or not it it works or um, you know it doesn't. But well, clearly, you're about- a fan. I mean, I'm a huge, huge fan of this film. I mean, I would say up, this is up there with me with Carnal Knowledge is probably my two favorite in the in this group, and they're all great movies. But I recognize with a deeply quirky, odd, odd, odd movie like this <laughs> that it's a very personal thing. Mm-hmm. That there is something when a filmmaker is going, you know, out on so many limbs and trying so many weird things as he as Lindsay Anderson does in this movie. And making it three hours long and having the musical score performed on screen, you know, in endless cutaways from the story to watching this band playing and singing and, you know, write these kind of amazing songs that comment in a very direct way on what you're watching. And I mean, that it, to me, it sort of starts to transcend good and bad into like, does it speak to you? It's sort of like this movie to me particularly feels like poetry. It's like, as you know, as much as yes, it's a story, it's so aggressively odd it's so aggressively looking to discombobulate you the way that the main character is discombobulated by his encounters with the world you know this kind of candide figure of a sweet innocent kind of going out into a into a not so sweet and innocent world and and you know dealing with the the horrible truths that he finds out there in this very funny but completely absurdist again almost such a monty python at times sort of way um I have no argument with somebody who says I, they hate this movie. I mean, I, I love it. It speaks to me. It did from the first time I saw it when I was a teenager. And I went, that's the most fucking amazing thing I've ever seen. I've never <laughs> seen anything like it. Uh, and it spoke to me emotionally. Like, I found the ending very touching. I found this his journey as somebody who, you know, is trying to find their place in the world with all this optimism and keeps getting it slapped down and keeps trying to find his optimism again. And then finally where it ends up, which is in this kind of this sort of a victory and sort of a loss and sort of finding his smile and sort of finding his smile is empty and meaningless. Um, to me was very powerful because it spoke about uh, America and, and and even though it's about England, but it spoke about Western society and our idea of success and our idea of being lucky and our idea of what it is to, you know, to, to be successful and what it is to be, you know, the, the top of the heap. And I'm how... curious though, r- really quickly, did you see this around the same time that you read the chocolate war? <laughs> Cause um, I, did, I, I think some think of the th- ideas are before I read the chocolate war. Mm. Um, I think, I, I think I saw this cause I saw this one the first time I think I was about 16 or 17 and okay. I don't think I read the chocolate war until a little later. Um, so, you know, but there are definitely influences. I mean, this, this, this movie definitely, I mean, I could go through my movies and probably find lots of shots, images, ideas, whatever that came out of it for me. Cause it was just, I just thought Anderson was the, it was the most, it was just the most ballsy movie I could remember seeing at that time. Sure. Um, cause it was like, you know, it was almost like, like pugnaciously like, Oh, you think we're going to do this? We're going to do that. Um, and yet it was really fun and really funny. I love the, the device of having, a small stock company of actors in a three-hour movie play different characters over right. and over again. Yeah, that, that's, that's, just, that's cool. That's definitely cool to see. And I thought it really commented on how circular life is and how, 
really in life we meet the same types of people over and over again and the same, you know, and it's weird. And, and, and politically now it's very politically incorrect because there's some, these actors even are in blackface in some scenes. Yeah, like, like, <laughs> that was a little like, uncomfortable. <laughs> it's like, you know, which, I mean, it's funny. For me, I can forgive it because mm-hmm. it was very much of the time and it feels like it's making fun of, I mean, again, when Monty Python did stuff like that, you'd kind of go like, yes, this is wrong and it's also <laughs> not virulently racist in the way that it might be if it was done otherwise. But it's definitely uncomfortable. If you made it now, people would be like, yeah, that's fucked up. And it is, but it, I don't think it really was in 73 in the same way. But it also was somewhat fucked up. And I think Lindsay Anderson is saying, this is fucked up. And yeah. that's part of the point he's making is that, you know, again, it's got that point of view, which I tend to agree with politically, which is that race can often be a cover for really things about class. Mm-hmm. And that what's really important is, you know, who's on top and who isn't. And skin color becomes one way that we impose that. But it's really, at the end of the day, it's much more about who's poor and who's rich. And yeah, just I like the landlord kind of again. <laughs> Sorry? Just like the landlord. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. So I think that, that, you know, while there are racial issues in this that are weird and disturbing, to me, I feel pretty clear that, you know, that Anderson's on the side of the good guys. Um, but he's doing it in a way that's intended to make you feel uncomfortable. And go like, oh, this is okay. Yeah. Um, but it's, I don't know, to me, it's like this giant burlesque of life that manages to have all these super serious ideas and yet be insanely inventive, but it goes on for three fucking hours and it's, doesn't really have a story. It's like, it's like, or very episodic, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. you know, he gets in one adventure, he gets out of it. He get, and yet I find it. And, and it's where I, it's where defending films becomes impossible at certain point because it's the poetry of it that I love. Sure. I can't, it's not really the ideas. It's not, I mean, all those things are important. But it just speaks to me. I just smile when I watch it, and I can utterly and completely understand somebody not having that reaction. And it's like, it's like I me. Uh, it's it's like me with Southland Tales. Like <laughs> I understand yeah. people hating that movie, but I, for some reason, I it just clicks with me. <laughs> well, I think film does that maybe more than most art forms because you know, film. Part of what's so great about film is it, we talk about film in very intellectual terms and themes and ideas and style and and yet the way we watch a film is very not intellectual even yeah. compared to theater. i mean film goes and i may have said this to you before over the years but it's like one of my deeply held feelings about film is that you know film goes right to your limbic system it goes through your eyes and to some place deep in your brain it's like watching a dream yeah and we may think about all the ideas and themes and all that but that's almost an afterthought it's like we react first to the images the music what's going on, and then we think about, wow, why did that affect me, and what is that saying, and what, whereas they say, for example, theater, most of the time, the great majority of the time, is the opposite. We hear the words, we think about the meaning of the words, and then we're moved by them, but it's an intellectual first process, the same with reading, whereas to me, film is more like a dream, where it's like, you may wake up crying from a dream, and then you can go back and go, wow, why did I wake up crying? But mm-hmm. the, the, the emotional response is the first response. And, and that's what I love about film. But it's also what makes film hard to really intellectually critique quite successfully. Uh, it's more like dance in that sense for me or music where, yeah. you know, why does certain chord changes that Beethoven does in the beginning of the Seventh Symphony evoke, evoke such a feeling of dread? I mean, in me and maybe not in somebody else. I mean, you can analyze it, but it's it's kind of after the fact. And I think that that's true of a lot of film too. I couldn't agree more with that. And that's probably why I respond to it. And, and, and it certainly helped that, 
you know, and I've mentioned this many, many times that a film like pump up the volume, when I first saw it, my brain was developing, you know, into the, into what it was going to become. Like, you know, as a teenager, your emotions are really on high and your hormones are on high. And I think your brain is absorbing many different things to see what is going to be your outlet. What is going to be the thing that gets you through the day sometimes. Yes. And when I saw that movie, I was like, Oh crap. (laughs) That's me. And I understand exactly what those characters are feeling. I love the music. I love what I'm experiencing for the first time is a sense of connection to, to just the emotions that are being on, on screen, but also the images of, of these vulnerable teenagers too. Um, but, but again, like with, with Oh Lucky Man, I think it was just, I, I, since I wasn't prepared and I don't, I, again, I'm not familiar with this filmmaker. It took me a little bit of time to settle in, you know, and, I'm not, and it's not to say I didn't like it. I actually did, but I'm not in the same category of love. And if you'd seen this when you were a teenager, that makes that I understand like how it could speak to you and and affect you in the way that it did. And look, I mean, for example, the same very same filmmaker, uh, he made a later film, you know, about the same character called Britannia Hospital, mm. with, again with Malcolm McDowell, basically playing this guy some years down the road, and you know, with a somewhat similar absurdist style. And I find that film, to me, doesn't work for me at all. And I can't even be that articulate about why. But for yeah. me, that one just feels silly. And a lot of people prefer it to a lucky man. A lot of people think it's hysterically funny that it really is Monty Python-level absurdity but with a political consciousness that it's a genius movie. And that movie I've tried like five times now, and I feel like it misses for me the the underlying poetic thing that made a lucky man work so well. But that's so – random and just how my brain happens to be wired i mean i don't think i'm right when i when i meet somebody goes i love britannia hospital and i hate a lucky man i don't feel like well i'm right and you're wrong you know and that's the same filmmaker doing much of the same stuff even stylistically a lot of the same cast and yet one to me goes deep and the other doesn't and boy isn't that what makes film so cool is that we can have these very visceral responses that aren't necessarily logical for sure. And the joy of doing an episode like this is talking about the feeling and your emotional response. I mean, it's great to intellectualize and it's great to find themes that run throughout all of these movies. There's no doubt about that or to praise the acting. But what it comes down to is I'm grateful that this movie made me feel something. Yes. And that's true for all of these. And there are definitely some titles that I think most folks may have heard of. I just wanted to give them an honorable mention. Um, I'm going to start with Bob Clark's Dead of Night, a.k.a. Death Dream. Is that Andy? Joanne doesn't even know he's home yet. She'll be so surprised. But Andy wouldn't kill anybody? which is easily one of the best horror films of the 70s. I don't know if I know that film. I'm, 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 
Say more. Yeah, I don't remember it, it. It, it's uh, it's 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 about um, this young soldier who comes back from Vietnam as a zombie, more or less. Or it's like a he's kind of like a zombie vampire. It's 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 he's yeah. hard, it's hard to define. But you want to talk about commentary? Uh, yeah, there, there's there's just this underlying theme of you know damage and post traumatic stress. And certainly how the parents deal with their son coming home different, you know, that is pretty heavy. Like it's got, it's, it's a creepy dark movie, but it's got this air of melancholy that is very unexpected. Uh, But then again, given it's time (laughs) and when it came out, maybe it's not so unexpected because people were dealing with this. Um, Is it Bob Clark? Yeah. Wow. I'm very curious. I think it was after, yeah, I think it was after Black Christmas. Um, but wow, it's really great. Uh, I can't remember who put out the Blu-ray. Uh, that was like trying to sneak a peek, but I don't have it nearby. But it's worth picking <laughs> up. Absolutely worth picking up. Uh, David Green's "I Start Counting," which is now available on Blu-ray through Vinegar Syndrome. Yeah, it uh, just came out. Which again, another one I hadn't seen, but it sounded pretty intriguing. For sure. If you want to hear an extended conversation on that, check out the Pure Cinema podcast with guest Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> very cool. Very, very cool. Uh, Camera Buff from Kishlovsky, an early work of his that I think is pretty strong. Like, as you were saying, it's just one of those amazing sounding movies that you somehow never managed to see. So um, I'm, I'm actually writing these down. Like, I'm supposed to be doing this with you, and I'm like, now you're... <laughs> saying good titles and i'm actually taking notes going okay pick this up get that they're also available on my letterbox list that i'll obviously post in the show notes but uh wake and fright by ted kocheff again Um, never saw it wow these are this is great this is like as a film fan i'm enjoying this part the most (laughs) well you want to talk about a film about toxic masculinity there you go uh but you know more focused on just the, the male side of you know, like I'm, I'm supposed to be masculine and, you know, I'm supposed to be in control and I want to take control of my environment and all that stuff. And it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, I almost, I think I might've described it as walkabout esque. So I think, I think you'll dig that one. Uh, Yeah. I think we differed a little bit via email when I mentioned Robert Altman's images, which Really freaks me out. Uh, despite kind of, kind of having a lackluster resolution, I think most of it really just unnerves me. Well, it's one like, and that's one again that that uh, that, and it's that weird thing of like that didn't speak to me the way say a lucky man did. Mm-hmm. But I respect how brave and interesting and complicated it is, and I'm very open to returning to it. I haven't seen it now in a few years. Uh, I think I saw only saw it twice. Once way way back when I was a, like a teenager, like around when it came out. And then once maybe 15 years ago. So I'm very open to revisiting it because I know a lot of people who I deeply respect have a a love for that movie. For whatever reason, it felt less deep to me and a little more surfacey than I think a lot of people. But that could be just as much about me. And again, that's what goes to what we're saying about films is that that could be about me just as much as it's about uh, about about anything about the, the movie. And after Sean Connery passed, I finally caught up with Sidney Lumet's The Offense. Have you seen that? No. I've Again, on my list of things I've wanted to see, I think I have a copy of it on video. I just haven't watched it yet. 
again, I think you can tell it's adapted from a play, but that does that doesn't make it a, a bad thing. Um, I just never seen Sean Connery in a role like this before, where he's playing kind of a corrupt cop. I mean, surprise, surprise, Sidney Lumet makes a corrupt cop movie. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's. But did anybody ever make them better? I mean, nope. he may have done them a lot, but man, right. And where is Prince of the City on video? Ah, uh, I need, yeah, that's, oh man. I love that one too. Band for Years, Over the Edge stars Matt Dillon in what has become a cult classic about young people against the system. You got some driving need to last things up for yourself? I've got a driving need to be left alone, okay? Don't no, leave. We're talking. I said, don't leave. We're running away. No. Will you get rid of the gun? Burn him, man. Just shut up. That arrow is putting out over the edge. Fairly soon. Yes. I think that is a film that got weirdly lost. Yeah. You know, it was very, I mean, again, was seen as a really a big deal when it, it was, I mean, that those are the ones that surprised me. You know, the films that got a lot of attention and a lot of discussion and a lot of, and then just kind of like, okay, now it's just gone. That just seems weird to me. Yeah, another, you know, teen rebellion film that was <laughs> kind of a precursor to something like Pump Up the Volume for sure. Sure. And very powerful stuff with uh, Matt Dillon. And last but not least... And I'm sure this isn't really underrated. I just like bringing it up anyway. Albert Brooks is r- real life. <laughs> you know, I do think it's underrated because I think it's gotten lost in in, the, in all of his other stuff, which, you know, I, I, I think it deserves to be seen as as much a part of his canon as all as, you know, Lost in America. And, but yet it's rarely talked about. So actually, I'm glad you mentioned it because I think it's I think it's a really cool movie. Um, and yeah. Yeah, it's, I think it actually has gotten a bit forgotten, and I don't really know why, because it's fun and it's very prescient. I mean, it's <laughs> definitely, you know, captures where, what the world has become in terms of reality TV and all that um, in, brilliantly well, and, and it's very funny. But, but yeah, it's just sort of never on the list of, of Albert Brooks movies that people ever, ever mention. Yeah, I think Criterion put out Lost in America, and they're releasing Defending Your Life soon, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's many lots. I think just about to come out, um, and you know, Lost in America is a great movie. And I mean, he's made a lot of you know, Modern Romance is a great movie. But but real life is really fun and great. And and you know, I guess I remember that you know it, it had at times it got a little repetitive or whatever. I mean, it has some first film flaws, but sure, it's, sure. But it's really worthwhile and funny as I remember. And, and it's yeah, I mean, that, again, that makes me want to go watch it again. Me too. Is there anything else that? Uh came to mind that we might have forgotten or anything you wanted to bring up oh i wish i made like a a a a runner-up list i didn't like think about that i mean we mentioned the one that was most important to me was in seeing you know in seeing uh a new leaf just mentioning also mikey and nikki which is yeah i think another you know it sort of had a resurgence i mean now it's not quite so overlooked i mean criterion put it out and it's you know it became a critic starling but I still, it's amazing to me how many people I know who are film buffs who have never seen it or kind of have sort of heard of it. But, and, you know, it's kind of like if you like Cassavetes, you should see this movie because, again, it does what Cassavetes does in terms of the messiness and the reality and the, 
but then it goes to some other kinds of deeper places that I actually, I mean, to me, it's the best Cassavetes film that Cassavetes didn't make. And it's also a remarkable companion piece to um, uh, A New Leaf. I mean, to watch those two films near each other and think it's the same woman making both of these movies, which couldn't be more different in terms of style and feel and tone and is really kind of remarkable and, and exciting. Because, you know, to see one person kind of be able to go to both of those places is, is pretty great. And, and there are just scenes in it that, you know, stick with me. The, the ending of it, there, there are a lot of things in the middle of it that stick with me constantly. And so that's one that I really urge people who missed to see. Um, trying to think of other things that, you know, now I'm doing this off the you know, top of my head, which is never the best way to do it. But <clears throat> um, there was The Shout, which is uh, – hmm. Uh, a Scott, I can never pronounce his name right. Skolmoski. Uh, yeah, I know who you're talking about. He did Central Killing, and, right. and I'm, I'm frantically putting him up on on uh, on uh, IMDb so I can remember some of the things he did that he was most most famous for. Oh, he did that the wonderful Moonlighting, not the, the, with uh, Jeremy Irons. He did. Uh, uh, oh, he, yeah, he was most famous in the in the late Deep End. Yeah, 70s. Deep, Deep End is the one I've seen. But the Shout was a film that he made that was sort of this weird art film meets genre film, which is always interesting. It's kind of a horror movie, but really an art film horror movie with Alan Bates, another wonderful actor who's gotten a little bit lost Ooh. in time, as a man who, in his you know, nomadic wanderings of the world, has learned to literally have a shout that can kill when he, when he yells. Uh. And it's, it's all very metaphoric for what's built up inside people and what's... I haven't seen it in years, <laughs> but when I think about films from that era that I loved, I remember going and seeing it in the theater a bunch of times. And it may not hold up as well, um, but it's just one of those movies that when people say, well, when, when you, were, there, were there weird movies that you loved as a kid? That one really stuck with me. And I remember like dragging people to see it. And some people I dragged to it went like, what the hell was that? And some people thought it was like the best thing they'd ever seen. Well, so that's, well, well shit. I think, I'm, I think I'm watching this tonight. I <laughs> Really? I, I have never heard of it but wow you got alan bates Susanna york john hurt and tim curry jim broadbent yeah. what i gotta see this okay you yeah. could imagine the subtle combination of one flew over the cuckoo's nest and scanners then you'll understand the power of the shout starring alan bates and john hurt One, one more, since you mentioned Cassavetes, Killing of a Chinese Bookie might be my favorite Cassavetes movie. Oh, that's interesting. And yeah. I, I, don't, I don't disagree that it's very underrated or comparatively forgotten. It's so weird at times. It's like there are asides, there are things in that that I, I vividly remember and kind of go, I've never seen that in a movie. Or I've never seen a filmmaker make that, that choice before. And Ben Gazzara... Wow. <laughs> he's phenomenal in that movie. Truly. He's another guy that did so much good work and then somehow gets remembered as, oh, yeah, he was fine. And, but when you look at the body of work he did with Cassavetes in some of those edgier movies, like he was never as interesting when he was being in a big normal movie. But when he kind of was allowed to to – to be weird, 
He was amazing. <laughs> For yes, sure. I mean, when you stick him in like a big Hollywood movie, he'd, he'd always be fine and professional and good, but it was where he could go to those dark places where, where he was quite remarkable. And again, very, I think, I think overlooked as an actor now in terms of when people think about great actors out of that time. Yeah, the, man, the 70s ruled. You're so lucky you grew, that that was the age. Yeah, that was my adolescence. That was when that was when I was falling in love with movies. It was during it was during that time, and I didn't know how good I had it. I mean, it was one of those things where I just thought, oh, well, it makes sense that every week there's a new Scorsese film or a new Truffaut film or a new Skolomowski film or a new, you know. I mean, it was just like, and it was. It was like every week there was like some incredible filmmaker doing something great. Um, that was the new thing you could see, and then when there wasn't. There was a revival, revival theater showing everything wonderful that had been done. So I was so happy. And, you know, I do look back now with with sadness. And, of course, again, we all do that. Again, I sound like that old guy going, when I was young, it was amazing and it was great. And, but I do actually think there are, within art forms, golden eras. And I do think that in American filmmaking, the late 60s and 70s were really a golden era. And it doesn't mean there weren't others and there won't be more to come. But the number of great filmmakers making great movies was very high, so that your chance of in any given month seeing a couple of amazing movies was really, really good. And I just don't think the economics of the business has allowed that to be the same way in, in more recent years. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that you went to the movies so much in the 70s and saw such great art, because then you would go on to make great art yourself. <laughs> well, I, I, I appreciate your support. And... And certainly, if there's good things in what I've done, it was very influenced by this time and these filmmakers. I mean, I, I these are all the people I grew up on going, I want to do that one day. So uh, I feel very grateful to all of them because they were my teachers. And thank you so much for coming back on the show. It was such a blast. It means so much to me, really. And, you know, like n nowadays, we just we do need pick me ups like this. <laughs> you know, well, I. But anytime, you know, I'm, I, I really enjoy talking to you. I think I love that, you know, we share tastes, but we also have different tastes, which I think is really fun because I like learn stuff from you and I hear about things I don't know and I rethink things I do and, and, you know, and, and you're a nice guy. Oh, thanks. So you too. I will. I am always available to do this with you whenever you have one that you want to go into. I'm, I'd be happy. Yeah. And I do, I do hope that at some point in the future we can have a coffee or something and talk in person but if people are ever allowed to sit in a table <laughs> together i think we will we will we must do that absolutely let me say that n that next year things will be better i'm i'm pretty sure but we can also talk about underrated films of the 60s and i'll start with a, a couple of titles that would include the monkey's head ooh yes <laughs> and frank perry's the swimmer I think those are two starting points. Those are great for the next episode. I think. Yes. Well, I would be very up for that because the sixties were uh, again, had some wonderful, we can do every era, but that was the sixties. I would be very up for that. So that's, that's the next one up. Absolutely, man. Always a pleasure. Uh, stay safe out there. All right. Thank you, my friend. You too. Be safe, be well. And I can't wait to actually be able to see you face to face without masks. <laughs> Same here, man. Okay. Take All care. Right. All the best. You too. Later. Bye. Roll on thunder, shine on lightning The days are long and the nights are frightening I 
Nothing matters anyway And that's the hell of it Winter comes and the winds blow colder Well, some go wiser, you just grew older You never listened anyway And that's the hell of it Good for nothing, bad in bed Nobody likes you and you're better off dead Goodbye, goodbye We've all come to say goodbye, 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 goodbye. 